Well, good morning, everybody. Nice to see you all. Some familiar faces and some new faces. How many of you are new to Spirit Rock? Just raise your hands. Okay. Welcome to Spirit Rock. <clears throat> so if you don't know, Spirit Rock is a Buddhist meditation center in the Theravada tradition. Theravada means the lineage of the elders, the early wave of Buddhist teaching and practice, and there have been many successive waves after that. <clears throat> and um, the theme today is exploring the four foundations of mindfulness. How many of you are familiar with what that is? Just raise your hands. <clears throat> Not so many. Okay. So... Um, well, I'll be sharing a lot about what that teaching is. It's a very foundational part of the teaching. And it's the, the body of uh, work that really is some of the basis for uh, much of the mindfulness teachings and practices and tools and techniques that are now quite widespread. Um, dating back 2,600 years ago. So, um, how many of you uh, have a regular meditation practice? Like, you know, once a year, regular. No, just kidding. Uh, January 1st, right, I'm going to do it this year. Okay. And how many of you have received, taken courses, classes, retreats in mindfulness specifically? Okay, so some of you. So some of you is quite new. So raise your hand if, you, if you've been meditating less than a year or not meditating at all. Okay, so quite a lot of new students. Um, that's maybe enough for now. So, um, well, how great that you've taken this day to... You know, I think of these days as retreats. Retreat as in retreating ourselves. Retreating ourselves to a day of silence, a day of stillness, a day of meditation, a day of being together in community, a day of being on this beautiful land, and a day now to unplug, to a little digital detox. I don't recommend you ask for the Wi-Fi code. I don't recommend you turn your phone on in the bathroom or at lunch or wherever you like to closetly look at your phone. Just give yourselves a break. You know, if you've got some emergency going on, you need to stay in touch with your kids or whoever is sick or whatever, of course, take care of that. But if you don't, then just give yourself a break. Our nervous systems are desperate for relief from stress, from busyness, from being constantly plugged in, and slightly on um, hypervigilance for the next ping, buzz, memo, text, whatever it is that's coming through our device. So I think of these times, these days, as just really nice opportunity to uh, slow down, to unwind, to connect with ourselves and each other, mostly ourselves, and uh, to turn the gaze of attention inwards. Mostly our gaze of attention in our life is necessarily turned outwards towards people, work, busyness, screens, doing, 
stuff. And this uh, day is a very different orientation where we're mostly becoming curious about our inner life, the inner landscape, the inner world. This is from John O'Donoghue. John O'Donoghue is a uh, beautiful Irish poet. And he says this. The mystery never leaves you alone. Behind your image, below your words, above your thoughts, the silence of another world awaits. A world lives within you. No one else can bring you news of this inner world. No one else can bring you news of this inner world. So that's partly what mindfulness does, is it reveals our inner world, our inner life, our inner landscape. Thoughts, feelings, perceptions, and the deeper understandings, insights, waves that move through our life. And then, of course, the point isn't just to become a good eyes closed meditator, but to take this understanding, this clarity into our life. So I've been doing this practice for a while. I started in the mid-80s. I had the good fortune to stumble into a meditation center when I was a very confused, angry young man. I was a punk rocker and an anarchist, and I was squatting houses and generally causing as much trouble as I could, uh, but not making myself very happy in the process, and um, stumbled upon this meditation center and uh, immediately fell uh, in love with these practices because I realized that they were really important keys of how to live a happy, free peaceful life that nobody had ever taught me. That wasn't part of my schooling. It wasn't part of my education. No one really gives you the tools to happiness when you're studying for your GRAs or your, you know, whatever exams you're taking at school. They teach you how to pass exams, how to retain knowledge, but not actually um, become wise, become necessarily happy or free, or peaceful. So, um, so I took those to the. I took to those practices very, uh, very strongly. I dropped out of college. I moved into a monastery and spent a lot of my early years studying on the long retreats and different teachers in Asia and the West. And then I've been teaching <clears throat> the last twenty years or so, and had the blessing to. Um, uh, stumble into Spirit Rock and um, uh, become very connected with uh, the, this place and these teachers and teachings. And it's a beautiful community for those of you who wish to find a community uh, of like-minded people who care about these things of meditation, mindfulness, awareness, kindness, etc., freedom. So. Um, so I just I just finished writing my latest book uh, on mindfulness. It's called "From Suffering to Peace: The True Promise of Mindfulness," 
And I wrote that book because, as you know, mindfulness is getting a little bit of attention these days. It's, it's in, it's, it, there's a ton of research. It's often in you know, various magazines and newspapers and articles. And um, it, there's a bit of a buzz about the practice and, and, and lots of research. And it's being sort of touted as the panacea for everything from, you know, hair loss to, I don't know, you name it. Um, <clears throat> but <clears throat> seriously, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, this wasn't always the case. You know, mindfulness has been around for a long time, but mostly somewhat obscure. When I started meditating, my parents thought I was weird. My friends thought I was crazy, and um, or they thought I was kind of navel gazing, nasal gazing, selfish. Um, it was fine for all my friends to go and get raucously drunk for two weeks on the south coast of Spain, but for me going on a meditation retreat, that was selfish. Okay, so if, if, if cultivating awareness and kindness and peace is selfish, then I'm not quite sure what, what their definition of selfish is. Anyhow, <clears throat> so, um, so what I want to do today is basically give you a little bit of a lay of the land of the map of this, this, these foundational principles of mindfulness and the domains, some of the domains or the areas in which we can look at, cultivate, and study. And <clears throat> the <clears throat> so I'll, bo- I'll both walk through that ex- uh, theoretically and then experientially through various meditation practices. There'll be time for questions, there'll be time for discussion. Um, we'll do some sitting practices, some walking practices. And um, for those of you who are very familiar with this material, then it's going to be really just a refresher. For those of you who are new, hopefully you'll um, uh, learn some key principles and practices that you can take away with you. This is a story from a student. I pulled some stories from the book just as a a way of exploring how this practice works. This is from... student. She says, like many others, I've had very dark moments with a difficult divorce, being a single mom, and having a strong idealistic tendency to think I should somehow find a perfect state of happiness in my life. Over the years, I tried a variety of spiritual practices and teachers, but nothing really seemed to help me cope with my patterns of reactivity, which still played out and brought me deep frustration and unhappiness. When I discovered mindfulness practice, It seemed as though I'd finally found something that did not set me up to search for some ideal state. Instead, it showed me a depth of awareness in which I could be kind, happy, and at ease in my ordinary life under any circumstance. Therein lies the peace and happiness I have longed for all my life. The pain of the divorce didn't magically disappear Neither neither did the challenges of being a single parent. However, mindfulness did give me the capacity to be present, accepting, and patient with whatever life threw at me. And this has been an invaluable gift. So I want to start with some uh, words from the Buddha about how he frame this practice. Right? And you may have heard about mindfulness, you may have read about it, and um, 
and the reasons for why one would do that are, are varied. As I said, it's touted for all kinds of different things. But in its essence, in its origin, it was really considered a practice that would allow us to understand ourselves and free ourselves from suffering. Anybody want to suffer less here? <laughs> Anybody suffering here? You know, This is the direct path for the purification, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of suffering, for the realization of peace, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. So what is mindfulness? Anybody like to say what mindfulness is? It's rather intimidating since we're starting a holiday on mindfulness. (laughs) Pardon? Awareness. Yes, awareness. Great answer. Pardon? Being sensitive. Mm -hmm. Non-judgment. Non-judgment. Presence. Presence. Um, Monotasking. Monotasking. Okay. Learning to stand on the banks of the river and watching the thoughts go by. Okay. So, um, I, yeah, I, I used I used the, the first uh, suggestion. I, I used the word awareness. I interchange awareness with the word mindfulness. I, I think of mindfulness as a clear awareness, a clear knowing of one's experience clear knowing what's happening as it's happening, a conscious attention. And that may sound very sort of mundane and not that exciting (laughs) and not that difficult. But when we pay closer attention, we see that uh, mindfulness, that we're not necessarily mindful or aware as much as we like to think we are. Harvard Medical School did a study tracking um, several thousand people and trying to ascertain how much of the day they were present to the very task they were doing in the day. And so they assessed all this data. And what do you think the percentage of was the average that people were present to the task that they were doing. If you think about yourselves, how much would you say, oh yeah, I'm present to the activity I'm doing? Hmm? 20? 30? Do I hear more? (laughs) It's a rather bleak view of human (laughs) attention. 5% gets even bleaker. 10%. Huh? Sometimes. Okay, well, it's better than that. <laughs> I mean, who knows, really? Because this test isn't exactly foolproof. It was a very simplistic assessment. But the, the data was that people were present, were not present 46.9% of the day. Basically half the day. They weren't really there for what they were doing. Right? So... Driving, spacing out. In a conversation, thinking about someone else, th- some, something else. C- 
cooking the dinner, worrying about tomorrow. Meditating in the morning, thinking about your work day, right? Etc., etc. So that's partly why we practice, because we're not so present. And with the pace of life speeding up, and with our interaction with, with our digital technology, phones, computers mostly, um, we've created a culture of distraction, a culture of multitasking, a culture of um, being less present. You know, when these teachings were given 2,600 years ago, most people were farmers, living a very simple life close to the land, a lot of manual labor. And, you know, when you're engaged physically, you're actually more present for the most part. Not always. Especially if it's a repetitive task. And even then... there were challenges to being present. Now, 2,600 years later, we've got a lot more more distraction. There's another research done. This was by Microsoft, I think. And they were tracking how long people could pay attention to a task on the screen. And somehow they've got all this sort of back-end metrics. Um... So I'm sure Google has also some very interesting metrics about how long you stay on a web page. <laughs> it's probably a few seconds, right? If we watched our eyes moving, it would be, you know, crazy. And uh, from 2000 to, to last couple of years, that attention span went from 12 seconds to 8 seconds. So a 50% reduction in our attention span to a task. Which, if we look at our experience, you know, and if you're, yeah, if you if you if you if you look back at how your attention has changed, you will probably agree that your your attention and your focus has probably deteriorated in the last ten years because of these things. Right? I notice it, and I'm a long-term meditator. I noticed that the 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 you know, we're conditioned. And so to the extent that we're using a technology that is pulling our attention and often scattering it in different directions, it's going to have an effect. So this is why we meditate, this is why we cultivate, this is why we come to these kind of days and centers to train, to cultivate attention, awareness, focus, presence, as a, partly as a support to the withering that's happening in our, in our culture. <clears throat> so, to understand mindfulness, um, you know, mindfulness is a very multifaceted thing and has a lot of nuance to it. So, um, <clears throat> and I will, I'll speak to some of these, these qualities. Um, and it's different than just attention. Right? Sometimes mindfulness is equated with attention. But there's, there's, there's other things that I think are important qualities. So one way of understanding mindfulness is, it's to, is to bear in mind something. To bear in mind. So when you're meditating, when we'll be focusing on the breath, the practice of mindfulness is to keep the breath in mind. 
to bear in mind the task at hand, which is to focus on the breath, to bear in mind the fact that the attention wanders, to bear in mind that we keep bringing the attention back to the present moment over and over and over. And so in that mindfulness is a way that we attend closely and intimately to experience. In the tradition it's called anupasati, A-N-U-P-A-S-S-A-T-I, anupasati, which is a, it's a way to contemplate experience. So this is a, a poem for you. Um, as as uh, as was mentioned earlier, I am a nature uh, nature lover. I spend a lot of my time in nature, and so most of my examples and poetry comes from nature. This is a poem about looking, and I think it's a very good analogy for mindfulness. To look at anything, if you would know that one thing. You must look at it long. To look at this green out here and say, I have known spring in these hills would not do. You must be the thing that you see. You must be the dark snakes of the stems and the fiery plumes of the leaves. You must enter into the small silences between the leaves. You must take your time. You must feel into the peace that these things issue forth from. You must be the thing that you see. You must take your time. That's a very different way of looking then, oh, cool grass today. <laughs> oh, it's green. <laughs> right? That's, that's simple attention. Right? Mindfulness is a contemplative looking and it's a, it's a deep quality of, of attention and presence. Another quality of mindfulness is it's an embodied knowing. It's not a conceptual thinking about, say, the grass it's an it, it's a it's a sensory it's a sensory it's a full bodied knowing so this is an in the body practice and we use the body as the one of the primary vehicles for becoming present we use the body as a vehicle for establishing mindfulness and that's what we'll be doing this morning there's a beautiful uh, phrase Yoniso Manisakara, and I'm going to spell it Y O N I S O Mani M A N I S A K A R A Yoniso Manisakara, which really means the womb of attention. Yoniso means the womb, and so when we're cultivating mindfulness, it's this womb of attention, embodied knowing. Very different, this idea of it coming from the head center. Right? Because our eyes are located here, and our, all our sense, most of our senses are up here, we think the mind and awareness is here. Okay? In mind, in Indian thought, the mind is located in the heart. 
So another facet of mindfulness, a word that's often twinned with it, um, is called Sampajanya. I'm going to spell that S-A-M-P-A-J-A-N-N-A. And it means clear comprehension or clearly knowing what's happening. So this is from Tanisaro Bhikkhu, who's a, a monk. And he says, Mindfulness keeps the object of your attention and the purpose of your intention in mind. So this is important, this piece around the purpose or your intention. When we're doing something as simple as paying attention to the breath, we also want to know why we're doing that. When we're meditating here all day, you want to know why you're here. Why are you cultivating mindfulness? Why are you cultivating awareness? That's important. As well as paying attention to whatever it is that you're attending to. So, and I'm going to explain a little more what I mean by that. So, in the context of the Buddhist path, mindfulness is just one little piece. It's an important piece, but it's just one piece of the pie. But, the reason why it's important, the reason why a Buddhist center like Spirit Rock has a lot of teachings about mindfulness, is because without mindfulness, without that awareness, it's hard to know anything. Hard to know ourselves, our body, our heart, our mind. And in particular, what we're paying attention to, as the Buddha said, is how we suffer and how we free ourselves from our stress, from our anguish. If we weren't suffering, if we weren't anxious, if we weren't stressed, you'd probably be taking a hike at the beach, right? Or something, right? I don't know what you'd be doing, walking in the park or playing with your kids or something, right? But usually you're here, you want to learn about mindfulness awareness because you want to understand yourself because you're probably looking on some level to be less stressed, less anxious, less suffering, and more at ease or peace, well-being. So the point of, of this cultivation of awareness is to understand, why is it that I'm not at ease in myself? Why is it that I struggle in my life? Why do I have such contentious relationships? Why is my mind so crazy? Why is it so hard to be with the pain in my heart? Why is it so terrifying to think about my own mortality, etc. So Thich Nhat Hanh, who is a great Vietnamese teacher, often known as Thai. Do you want me to spell that? T H I C H, Nat N H A T, Han H A N H, Thich Nhat Hanh. And he said, um, Buddhism is simply a way to live well. Happiness is available. Please help yourself. Buddhism is simply a way to live well. Happiness is available. Please help yourself. And this is very much the, a kind of a kernel of these teachings. There's a phrase um, uh, that loosely translated is... Um, these teachings are a come and see for yourself thing. 
come check it out for yourself. It's not a dogma. It's not a philosophy. It's not a um, ontological truth. It's it's a it's a pragmatic set of tools and methodologies for understanding ourselves and freeing ourselves from suffering. So you may not have. This may not be why you're here, but so you may be getting more than you wanted. <laughs> Maybe getting more than you asked for. You know, and you can take these teachings at whatever level you want. You can practice mindfulness to simply be more relaxed, more concentrated. Or you can take these practices and find a genuine peace and freedom. So it's the awareness that reveals the ways that we, we, we often create so much of our own stress. And we'll explore that as we go through the day. Mostly, we're looking at how we are in contention, how we struggle and resist and fight with ourselves and our experience. And if you don't believe that that happens, we'll just pay attention for a few minutes and you'll see that we're never at peace with what's happening. We want it to be better. We want it to be different. We want us to be better and different. We want something to go away. We want something else to happen. And we're rarely just able to be okay with what's here. Whatever it is. I had a great experience this morning. I I was going to buy some plants for my garden. Sort of excuse of a garden. And um, and they were too big to pick up. So I had to leave them on will call for my contractor. But the will call process was really complicated and I didn't have time because I was supposed to be teaching mindfulness and I didn't want to be late because it wouldn't look so good. So that was all stressful and i sort of not quite sure what's going to happen with the things that I bought, but anyhow, they're still there. And, um, and then I'm slightly pushing it for time because that all took way longer than I thought. And I'm not happy about that, and I like to get here early and get all settled. And then I wasn't settled because I was running late. And then I'm driving down to Francis Drake, and there's five million bicyclists on the road <laughs> who thought it was the best day to do a mindfulness bike. I don't know. You know, it's a beautiful day. Why not? I would be biking if I wasn't teaching. Um, and uh, you know, I love bicyclists, and I'm very respectful of bicyclists because I'm a bicyclist, and lots of my friends have been hurt in accidents. And um, I didn't want to see the bicyclist. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> oh, it's a peloton of 50 bikes. Great. <laughs> Taking up half the road. Great. May you be safe and happy. And get out of my way. <laughs> Quickly. Because <laughs> I need to hurry up and be mindful at Spirit Rock. <laughs> And so it goes, right? So we get into contention with experience, with life. So a few other things to say, and then um, we'll do some practice. So...
So in the course of the day, just some principles. One is be patient. Mind training is slow and it's not easy. And our, our, our image or fantasy of what a day of meditation is at Spirit Rock in the country is very different than the experience of it. <laughs> right? You've probably been sitting all week at work going, oh, Spirit Rock on Saturday. It's going to be so blissful. It's going to be so peaceful. And it might be. I'm not saying it won't be. But it's also, you know, meditation is work and, and, and practice and training, just like the gym or anything else that you learn and study is training. Uh, invite a quality of beginner's mind, which means to see, to come here with, with a freshness or curious spirit. And even if you've meditated for 20 years, which some of you have, and you've followed your breath for 10 million breaths, doesn't matter. What matters is this moment, this breath, this body, this experience. And can we accept what's here rather than what we want it to be, expect it to be, have preference of how it should be? And that's a very radical orientation. That's really kind of the cornerstone of freedom is can we bring a radical acceptance to whatever happens in this moment, in this meditation, in this day, in this life? And if not, that's what we bring attention to. Resistance, judgment, struggle, complaining, comparing, bitching, moaning, sleeping, reacting, all that stuff is the stuff of life that we want to get to know. Oh, look what I do when I don't get what I want. I judge, or I blame, or I go to sleep, or I check out, or I fantasize, or I get my phone out, or I disappear, or who knows what. These are useful things to know of oneself. So, as I said, we're going to start with the body, mindfulness of body. The, body, the Buddha said, mindfulness of body is one's best friend. Or one's body is, can be one's best friend. So, what does he mean by that? Well, the body is always in the present moment. Mindfulness is a present moment awareness. The more engaged, connected, embodied we are to our physical experience, the more likely we're here. And then most things we need to learn about this journey from suffering to peace can be explored through the body. And we'll be spending a lot of time doing that. So right now as you're sitting... Notice if you have a body. Notice if you have a relationship with it. Notice if you're in it or slightly out of it. Notice if the body feels safe or not safe. Notice if the body it feels like a friend or you treat it like a foe. Notice if you're inhabiting your body like feeling it from the inside, or whether you're looking down at it whenever it's problematic. Hungry, horny, hurting. I think there's one more H, but you know, it's usually when it gets our attention. Right? And tired. Haggard, four H's. Um, so as we go through the day, Make your body your refuge for your attention. 
when you're sitting, when you're walking, standing, eating, peeing, sleeping? What's it like to be present in this physical experience? What is the body revealing? The Buddha said, there's one thing that when cultivated and regularly practiced leads to this deep spiritual intention, to peace, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to vision and knowledge, to a happy life here and now, to the culmination of wisdom and awakening. What is that one thing? It's mindfulness centered in the body. That's a pretty heavy sales pitch. And potentially true if one helps oneself. All right, so enough words. <clears throat> so uh, we'll do this a little practice and then we'll do a longer practice. So the first, we're just going to do a short one minute technique that I like to um, play with. And it's, it's exploring the nature of your attention. And it's called a practice of unmindfulness. Unawareness. We'll do it, we'll do it for a minute. And then I'll ring a bell. <clears throat> we'll debrief and then we'll practice. So the instruction is don't pay attention. Don't notice anything. Don't be aware. Don't be mindful. Don't make any effort. And then see what happens. Okay, off you go. Not noticing anything. Not being aware. Eyes open, eyes closed. Doesn't doesn't matter because you're not noticing. a bell. You can tap each other if you need to. What did you notice? It's very hard to not notice. Right? Nigh on impossible. probably the most aware you're going to be all day. (laughs) Because you're not trying to meditate. You're not trying to be mindful. You're not trying to get anywhere except not here. So what happens in that? You relax and what happens? You notice stuff, right? You notice a lot of things. Maybe you notice a lot more things than you did when you were just quietly meditating this morning. 
So what does that tell you? Right? If mindfulness is about cultivating awareness, you could say, and that if we just don't do anything and even try not to do, be aware, it happens anyway, then what's the big deal about mindfulness? What's the point of mindfulness training if we're... Is that a question? No. Um, what is the point of mindfulness training if awareness is, is already happening quite merrily by itself? It's a good reflection. What does that mean that awareness is always here? And so this, it comes back to what I was talking about earlier about these different facets of mindfulness. So mindfulness, one, one way... Um, so, well, just to finish off that reflection. So the, second, so the question that comes out of that reflection for me, then, for you, is if awareness is always noticing something, right? whether you want it to or not, whether you like it or not, it just is. Sounds, sensations, thoughts, images trying not to be aware, or whatever you were doing. The question is, what is awareness attending to? What are we paying attention? What are we preferencing? Where does our attention normally go in our life? Just shout it out. Where, where does your attention mostly go? Outside of yourselves. Where else? Hmm? Thoughts. Right. Mostly it's in our thought. It's in our head or it's out there. But mostly in here mostly wrapped up in our thinking. In what neuroscientists call the default mode network, this sort of thread of structures in the midline of the brain, mostly ruminating about ourselves. Me and my life and my story and my worries and my plans and my family and my hopes and my fears and dramas. and That's what we think about. Me or you. Not me, hopefully. Um, so, given that habit, really, what so much of meditation training is noticing the habits of mind to think, to space out, etc., etc., and learning to direct attention, the conscious knowing of experience. In, in, in purposeful ways. So in this practice we'll do now, mindfulness of breathing, which is you know, foundational practice. It's one of the, the, the main practices within mindfulness, the first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of body. It's a practice that develops a simple attention, simple physical awareness, simple moment-to-moment continuity of attention as a, as a support for concentration, support for uh, awareness. And also knowing that when we give the attention a, a specific task, it's very clear when we're not on point. Right? You're either paying attention to your breath or you're not. So it becomes a good reference mirror to seeing, oh, I maybe pay attention two out of ten seconds in every, you know, or ten seconds out of every minute, or three out of every twenty breaths, or whatever. And so that becomes a useful 
anchor for the attention, becomes a useful uh, mirror for the quality of our attention. Okay, so let's do some practice. But since you've all been sitting for a while, how about we all stand and just take a moment to stretch. And if you need to get any other thing for sitting, you know, if your legs don't touch the floor, then I recommend you get a cushion to put your feet on. If you feel like you're slouching on a chair, I recommend that you get a little cushion for the support your lower back. Um, If you're sitting on the floor, sometimes people sit too low. Sometimes you might need two cushions. Does it feel warm in here? Thank you. For those of you who don't think it's warm, then it's going to get cooler. This is your first practice. (laughs) Finding ease with the temperature in the room. Which is going to change. And we're going to like it and not like it. And we notice our relationship to it. Okay, so sitting back down. So sitting with an upright posture, so not slouching in your chair, feet on the floor, spine upright, chest open, hands on your legs or in your lap. just going to give a little posture demonstration for those of you sitting on the floor. You don't have to make adjustments now, but you might do in the next sitting. So um, if you're sitting cross-legged, ideally both knees are either touching the floor or they're supported by something. So um, so if, if, if your knee doesn't touch the floor, then you might Let's pretend this is a cushion. You put a cushion under your knee. So there's some sense of stability. And usually if there's more height, it's easier to sink the knees down to the floor. The other option is you can kneel. You can kneel on these cushions. You you either just have two together or you turn them on the side. And then kneeling is a very way to find a comfortable posture. I use a bench, which I find very helpful for the knees. There's cushions up here if you need extra cushions. So you want to play with it, especially if you're new to the practice. You want to find a posture that you can sit comfortably, at ease. You know, we'll be sitting for 20, 30 minutes at a time. 
And if that doesn't work sitting on the floor, then please sit in a chair. There's no point in creating unnecessary pain since there's already plenty of pain in life. Don't need to make our meditation more painful. And then once you've established you know, a, a posture that's relatively comfortable, it's never perfect. You sit long enough and it will get uncomfortable. So relatively comfortable. Then either closing your eyes or at least lowering your gaze so you're looking down. But ideally, if you're comfortable, close the eyes. And then in that same very short meditation that we just did, First, seeing if you can just relax your body as much as you're able to. Soften the belly. Soften the eyes. Relax the jaw. Anywhere else you're holding tension, can you invite it to release? And then first of all, just noticing... What do you become present to when you close your eyes? Maybe you notice the space that you're in, this room, or the sense of sitting with a lot of people. Or you sense the sounds, or the silence, ringing in the ear. Often what comes to awareness is the physical body. You may notice your posture. You may notice where your body is contacting the ground. Through the feet, legs, buttocks, hands. You may notice what mood or emotion is present. Maybe something that you're carrying with you from this morning, from your life. Maybe you're noticing your mind. Maybe your mind is very busy thinking. So this is the first practice of mindfulness, simply being aware of the totality of your experience and noticing what calls your attention. Thoughts, emotions, physical sensations and having an attitude of curiosity and welcoming.
And then from this more open place, now becoming aware of breathing, not changing the breath, not having any kind of yogic breath. Just notice how you're breathing, short or long, deep or shallow. feeling and sensing directly, intimately, all the sensations as you inhale, exhale. Bring awareness to the tip of the nostrils. of the air of the inhale, the warmer, softer air passing through the nostrils. And seeing if you can let your attention become wrapped with curiosity. What is it like to breathe, to feel the body breathing itself? Appreciating how this breath keeps us alive. Sensing the breath now in the chest, feeling the chest, ribcage, shoulders, diaphragm expanding, lifting, falling, inflating, deflating. All the changing sensations of expansion, contraction, lifting, falling. moving And 
Now letting your attention settle wherever you feel the breath most clearly, at the nostrils, or in the throat, or the chest, or the belly and diaphragm area. And just being present to the flow of sensations of the inhale and the exhale. And of course, many other things will be noticed in attention and awareness. Sounds, sensations, thoughts, images, feelings. So we acknowledge those things. And then resuming, reestablishing awareness of breath over and over. Each time you notice your attention has wandered from this moment, this body, this breath, that itself is a moment of mindfulness. 
And without judgment, we simply begin again. This moment, this inhale, this exhale. If you find the attention is wandering a lot, you might make a soft mental note of in on the inhale, out on the exhale as a way to support the mind attending more closely. Or you may use counting, one on the inhale, two on the exhale, up to 10. If the attention wanders, you start again at 1. Keeping either the labeling or the counting very background, maybe 5% of your attention. The majority on the physical changing sensations of breath.
where is your attention in this moment? If not here, where does it go? And without judgment, resuming, reestablishing awareness of breath over and over.
last few minutes of the sitting. No matter how far the attention may have wandered, it takes only a moment to return here, to reestablish mindfulness of breath over and over. When you hear the sound of the bell, just be mindful of sound, hearing, and then as the meditation ends, shifting posture, opening the eyes, but continuing this quality of attention. say this practice is simple but not easy. Simple that five-year-old could follow the instructions for well, at least for 20 seconds. But not easy. Not easy to sustain, which is why we train. That was half an hour. Which may have felt some of you like three years and some of you three minutes, depending on mostly your quality of concentration and absorption or whether there was a lot of restlessness and distractibility, which there quite often is. So, um, I'm going to shift gears to another practice um, and then after this next practice we'll come back and I'll we'll take some questions. So first I'm going to invite you to stand up where you are.
And I know there's some of you here who've been meditating a long time, so we're going to shift into a walking practice. And if you feel like you're comfortable with the walking instructions, you're welcome to exit at any time, rather than listening to me droning on. Otherwise, I'll give you some instructions. So, um, there's a piece from the Satipatthana text, the Mindfulness Four Foundations uh, text, and uh, the Buddha says, um, the meditator acts clearly knowing when eating, drinking, tasting, clearly knowing when defecating and urinating, clearly knowing when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. Basically, no breaks, including the bathroom. You have to pee here now, so the Buddhist joke goes. It's very corny, I know, I'm sorry. So, um, basically, we're learning in the practice, we're learning to be mindful in four postures. Sitting, walking, standing, and lying down. So, we've just been mindful of sitting. So, I'm just going to very briefly just walk us through standing, and then I'm going to send you out to do walking practice. Assuming it's not going to rain today, I didn't check the weather, but I love walking in the rain, so... Uh, So just wherever you are, standing as you normally do, comfortable, relaxed, and um, either lower your gaze or if you can, close your eyes, just again to invite that interior awareness, that interior attention. And just first notice as we cultivate mindfulness of body, What do you notice as you stand? How does it feel to inhabit your experience from the inside? So feeling your body from the inside, not looking at an image of the body. How does it feel? Can you feel your feet touching the ground, the softness or hardness of the ground, your bones and skin and flesh in your feet? Aware of your legs, maybe moving, tensing, relaxing. Aware of your torso, moving with breath. Notice how the breath may feel different standing than sitting. Aware of the arms by your sides or in your lap. Aware of your head. Aware of your senses, sensing the body, seeing, hearing, and with standing meditation, mostly we're just being aware of the body standing, and for, as an anchor for the attention, like we use the breath as an anchor, you can keep your attention in the feet. Aware of the soles of your feet touching the ground. And just notice the quality of your experience as you stand. The quality of your attention. The quality of your energy. Are you more awake 
alert, more present, more grounded, or more uncomfortable, or more agitated. So what's present? How does it differ than sitting? Usually when we're standing, we're more alert. It's harder to numb out. It's more risk to falling asleep. Like about five feet. So this is simple standing meditation. And so at any time today, either during the walking practice, which we're going to do, or during the sitting meditation, particularly if you're tired, sleepy, dozy, dreamy, and it's hard to stay awake, you can just stand up and continue meditating like this. Okay, you can open your eyes. So in the walking meditation, so we talked talk about mindfulness, sitting, walking, standing, lying down. So in this tradition, we walk up and down. Some traditions you walk around in a circle, some together, we do it solo. And the idea is we're not right now going for a hike or a walk, we're just going to do a walking meditation where you basically walk up and down, pointlessly going nowhere, accomplishing nothing, except moving the body and staying present to your body in movement. So we're moving all day, or most of the day, unless we're stuck on our, in our chairs off at work or something, or in a car. So the idea is you walk up and down, and you walk at whatever pace feels comfortable. I like to walk at a slightly slower pace than normal, but you don't have to. And so you find a, you know, a, somewhere where you can walk up and down, maybe 10, 20, 30 steps. And you're just simply being present to moving, walking, Uh, as your next meditation practice. So, primarily, it's helpful to stay present to keep your attention in your legs, but particularly in your feet. I like to pay attention to the soles of my feet. So I'm just feeling the feet touching, lifting, moving, placing, turning, feeling all the muscles and bones and skin and the way the, the, the legs pivot and swing and the weight moves side to side and so you can just play with that right now so as you're standing there just move your 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 uh, weight side to side which is what we do when we walk we move we sway we move side to side so pour all your weight into your right foot and then just take a standing step lift your foot and place it exactly where you are unless you can move forward and lean into your left, lift the right. And just notice all the different sensations. Movement, swaying, lifting, muscles changing, bones moving. So that's what we're doing. Come back to standing. And of course there's a lot more going on when we're walking. We're looking at this, we're seeing, we're hearing, there's people, there's navigating space and stuff around, there's nature, there's beauty, there's animals. And in this particular practice, we're, not, we're mostly not noticing, we're not preferencing that. We're preferencing our own physical experience and just being present to walking. So my eyes are slightly down, I have my hands down by my side or you know, however what's comfortable. 
And of course, just as in the sitting meditation, your attention will wander, it'll space out, it'll get bored, it'll restless, it'll think, it will look at other people, it will judge them, it will do whatever it does. You notice that. You see who's looking the coolest, who's looking the most unmindful, and you're glad you're not them, but you wish you were that cool person over there. And then I'm back, back to myself, sitting, sensing, standing. Some people like to be aware of their breath as they walk and time their steps with their breath. I don't do that. I don't teach that, but some, that might be natural for you. I let the breath be background and the physical movement be foreground. And just like in the sitting, it's a training. Training in attention, training in embodiment. Attention wanders, come back, spaces out, comes back, starts thinking, comes back. Notice a super cool flower. You might stop, look at the flower, carry on. You notice a beautiful bird song. You might stop, listen. So you can pause, or maybe a big emotional wave comes up. Pause, just feel what's going on. Oh, I'm really anxious right now. It's worrying about some work project. Take a few breaths. Carry on walking. So you can walk, um, uh, plenty of places to walk. In the courtyard out there, in the foyer, in the courtyard out there, you can walk on the road, you can walk, there's a little meadow down there. Um, and, um, And then we'll ring a bell in about half an hour to signal coming back, and then we'll do, take some questions. And uh, and then we'll do a, another sitting before lunch. Um, I will stay in here if you do have questions, either about the sitting practice or the walking or anything else. I'll stay here to answer those, and I'll answer questions in the big group when we come back. Okay. Enjoy your walking. We'll stay in silence. And this isn't a tea break. This is a walking practice time. Just tea break is a lunch.
Okay, welcome back. So, before we do another meditation before lunch, um, any questions about your practice, the sitting meditation, the walking meditation? And if you raise your hand, there's a mic. So, question over here, be gentleman in green, up behind you, behind you. Raise your hand. Thanks. Hello. Hi. How do you know if you're doing it right? How do you know if you're doing it right? Anybody wondering if they're doing it right? (laughs) Or doing it wrong, probably, thinking, mostly. Um, Well, I can relieve you from the burden of thinking there's a way to do it right. (laughs) Right? Because that's part of the problem, is we think there's a right and a wrong way. Right? And... I don't think it's I don't think it's a helpful paradigm to think right wrong. There's more ways that are more or less helpful, or more skillful, or more potent, or whatever. Um, so, say more about your question. What is it that you're wondering about? Whether you, what it is you're doing it right or not? So. When I bring my attention, so when I bring my attention back to my breath, I mean, I could, I could feel my breath. I could sort of follow it. Is that what I'm supposed to do, or? (laughs) And then, you know, of course, my my thoughts will drift, and I'll try to bring it back, and then it'll drift without me noticing it. Yes. And I'll bring it back. Yes. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we think we're in control of our mind and our attention, and then right before our eyes, we're suddenly we're, we're daydreaming about the movie we saw last night. Like, how did that happen? I was with my breath. I'm sure I was with my breath, and someone snuck in, and it's like a magician's trick. So, um, in that sense, yes, you're, um, what you're reporting is totally normal and fine, which is, you know, in this case, we attend to the breath, and... Within a few seconds, mostly, our attention wanders and you know, gets distracted by a thought, an image, a memory, a sound, a feeling. And our attention goes there for a few seconds, a few minutes. And then we remember, oh, right, meditation. Or you hear my instruction. So you come back, feel your breath. And we're not doing anything with the breath, simply just noticing, which feels very ordinary, nothing unusual or exciting or and then we're learning to sustain the attention then develop a continuity of attention with with the breath and then noticing all the times we wander off so that i think the reason why we think what i think reason one of the reasons why that question comes up is we think that getting distracted means we're doing it wrong becoming distracted is part of the meditation focus on the breath, our mind wanders, we bring it back. All of that is the practice. And that that might happen several hundred times in half an hour. We wander off, we come back. We wander off, we come back. It's like, yeah, we wander off, we come back. That's the the training. The training is returning, re-establishing mindful awareness uh, over and over. Should I feel like a sense of concentration or... 
only if you're only if you're concentrated, <coughs> and if you're not, then you no, you feel whatever is going on. If you're concentrated, you feel concentrated. If you're not, then you feel what that's like. You feel you notice whatever your experience is, and uh, allow that, as it were. Yeah. Thank you. Please at the front here. Down here in the hoodie. So it's along the same lines as that, but um, I'm pretty new to the practice, maybe half a year. Um, And I find that I'm able to do slightly longer bits of keeping my attention there and then my brain wanders. And I'm curious if after 30 some odd years of doing it, if that just gets prolonged, if if it gets easier to recognize your mind is wandering, um, I guess what what we're aiming towards is it longer periods of thoughtlessness or that feeling of peacefulness and also second question um do does anybody else find it exhausting after a while because i get really tired (laughs) (laughs) all right so i'll repeat the question in case you couldn't heard here um uh second question first do you find it exhausting trying to pay attention it definitely takes a lot of energy if you don't think it does, then next time you have a cold or flu, try meditating. You just don't have the energy. The mind is too wily to, to concentrate. You know, it uses a lot of brain. I mean, the brain takes up most of our energy, and concentrating the attention. Basically, we're interrupting the habitual mode of the brain, which is to go into default mode to think and ruminate and plan. And, and that takes a lot of mental energy. And to sustain, it's a slightly counterintuitive thing to sustain the attention on one thing. It's not how our survival circuitry uh, developed. You know, we do for a little bit, you know, if we're hunting or something, but mostly it's much more broad. So yeah, it takes a lot of energy. And it doesn't have to be tiring if we're not struggling. And it gets easier. And if we're not judging and we're not beating ourselves up for getting distracted and we're not resenting our thoughts and we're not, if we're not at war with us, if we're, if we're struggling with ourselves, then yes, it gets more tiring. Um, so it's important to be relaxed in the body. So we're not tense, that takes energy, relaxed in the body. And um, it's a relaxed alertness, it's a balanced attention. There's a lovely analogy. I was going to talk about these earlier, but. I didn't. So my favorite analogy the Buddha gave for uh, this quality of attention is um, uh, he said it's like um, so imagine so in India then and now you get cow herders so so kids watching over the cows in case they wander onto the farmer's fields and the image he gave is it's like a young cow cow herder boy leaning up against a tree He's back against the tree in the shade. So he's relaxed and he's overlooking his dominion of cows, but he's not like, don't go there. You know, he's like, no, he's relaxed. He's in the shade until he needs to be responsive. Right? So that can help take some of the, you know, make it more relaxed. And also if, we, if we're fighting with our thoughts or fighting with sleepiness, that's tiring. So... Um, 
And if we're judging ourselves, that's tiring. You know, if we beat ourselves up every time we think, oh, God, I lost, you know, I got distracted again. Back to our breath. That's all tiring, so and and it does take some effort, and but also it also can be energizing, you know, especially over time. Um, so you know, been doing this a while, and for me, mostly it's deeply relaxing, it's deeply nourishing, it's deeply stilling, and and it's not that you know, I still have thoughts. The mind will always think, and uh, I might have a lot less thoughts than I used to, and I care a lot about less about them and less interested in them. But you know, thoughts have hooks. And our attention grabs on, you know, with whatever's going on in our life. You know, it's a lot going on, more hooks, not so much going on, less hooks. And if we train ourselves to not buy into every thought and jump on every thought train, then over time, yes, we, we get pulled out less, we get seduced less, we get distracted less. And so there is more space, there's more calm, more peace, um, and also, also less bothered. If the mind wanders. It's not. It doesn't. Doesn't disturb the mind. No. Well, the, so the question is: Is that is that is that the goal? The goal is. Um, I mean, the goal of the, the point of the practice is is liberation, is freedom from suffering. Right. In the context of meditation. The goal is to be awake and aware of our moment-to-moment experience for the purpose of understanding and insight. So so this first two meditations, they're training in attention and you could say concentration. Concentrating on the breath, concentrating on the walking, concentrating on the body. As a way, a lot of our practice is just arriving, settling, grounding. Right? A lot of it's arriving. Like we're not even in our bodies or in the moment, so we're coming back over and over and over and over. And that that's that's you could say beginning goal. I don't like the word goal, but a beginning intention is just to arrive, to know ourselves, to know our experience. Um, and the steadier and calmer and clearer the mind is, the more deeply we will know that experience. Question here? And then in the back over there. And then this chap in blue, if you want to pass the mic to this chap in blue. Yes. Hi. Could you please speak a little bit about seeing colors during meditation? So what, what colors are you seeing? Usually purple with a little bit of green. Uh-huh. Okay. So the question about colors in meditation. Uh, some t- yes. So quite normal. We often see colors for various reasons. And... Um, you know, it's interesting to see what kind of colors they are. Like colors, you know, different systems have different meaning. Um, in the context of this practice, we don't give it any meaning. It's just colors. It's just seeing, visual, you know, appearances, light, color. Sometimes it's a sign of concentration, and sometimes it's just because you're a visual person. And from the perspective of mindfulness, we're just noticing it in the same way you notice a sound. Or you notice the sensation. Oh, just another passing thing. Maybe it stays for a while. Don't make a big deal out of it. Be aware of it. Stay present. What else is here? Okay, back to my breath. Yeah. Okay. And back here, lady in black. And then there's this chap here in blue. Laney. 
the dark blue here. Yeah. And there was a hand back here, and, and okay, there's a hand over here. But yes, please. I have a look. I have a question about location. Where do you find the best location for your walking practice? Hmm. For me, it seems like I need to be in an environment where here you can feel very comfortable walking anywhere on the premises. Right. But in a big city, I'm not going to be walking down the street focusing on my heels to toe. Right. So, and then you mentioned earlier about you spend a lot of time in nature. I spend quite a bit of time in nature too. But that focus is not, I'm not focusing on my, my walk. Well, I am focusing on that too for if it deals with being quiet in the forest. But beyond that, I'm focusing on seeing, being part of nature. You mentioned earlier about if you see a flower outside, stop and enjoy it. Well, I stopped and enjoyed two hawks that were flying about for a while. So that distracted from my walking practice, but you see where I'm going with this as far as location. Where is it more comfortable to be in a place? Yeah. So, um, I mean, there's different dimensions to that question. So, yeah, you want to be comfortable wherever you're, wherever you, you want to be comfortable whatever you're doing, meditating, you know, and um, so there's comfort and then there's support. So the comfort is, you know, yes, you don't want to be walking, doing slow walking on Union Square, you know. Um, you could, but it's an interesting practice. Some people do. I actually, I, in fact, I've led a lot of walking meditations downtown San Francisco. It's really fun. We get a lot of looks. Um, and we sometimes have a lot of homeless folks come and join us. It's, that's even more fun. Because um, what else, you know, to do? It looks like fun. Um, so, you know, people may walk indoors. They walk in their yard, they walk on the deck, they walk in the corridors, they walk, you know, or out in nature where you're mostly going to be, you know, relatively undisturbed on a trail somewhere. Um, so, yeah, it's the environment's important. And if you want to be less distracted, then you walk inside. Right? So, we, so, so we have walking, like a, a, in the retreat center, we have walking meditation rooms just for walking. They're just absence of distraction. If you're outside, then there's a lot more stimulation, a lot more things to uh, lure the attention. And so there's basically two kinds of walking. You could, you could sort of summarize them into two. Um, there's a more interior-focused walking that's concentrated. You're concentrating on your steps, on your movements, on the subtlety of all your physical experience. Or you have a more open awareness where you're present to the whole flow of experience. So in this case, you're walking, just happily walking up and down. You notice the birds, you look up, you stop, you're aware of seeing, fly away, get back to walking. It's a flower, you stop seeing, enjoying walking back and forth. Someone, you notice some sounds, you stop, you listen, or you, or you do it simultaneously. Right, so there's, there's a focused, concentrated attention, or there's more of an open awareness. And so just be mindful of what you're doing, which, which lens of attention. And ultimately, what's important is less uh, what you're attending to, but whether you're attending and how you're attending. Right? 
So in the case of nature walk, we're mostly, mostly walking with a more open awareness. So you're present just to the flow of beauty and color and light and sounds and nature and birds and whatever. In, the, in this kind of walking, we're just doing it it's more interior focused and both have their place. So in my nature retreats, I do both, but mostly it's more open awareness. The value of doing the slow walking up and down is we develop a kind of very, uh, you know, we develop that interior embodied knowing. So whenever I'm walking around anywhere, I'm really in my body because I practiced that for 25 years. Like really being in my body as I walk. It's a great refuge when I'm downtown San Francisco or wherever I am. Like I'm here. So I don't have to, you know, cross my legs to get mindful. It's like, no, I'm walking and that's, my, that's one of the places I get really present. And then when I'm outside in nature, I'm present to my body and I'm present to the whole field of experience. How great is that? Right? It enhances whatever you do. So, hand there and then a hand over here. How does the mindfulness and meditation practice tie into the less suffering? Is it does it tie into like reducing your thoughts? We're going to get to that. Okay. Thank you. Hand over here. Oh, there was in purple. <clears throat> Relating to the gentleman's comment about colors or the, the lady's comments about seeing green and purple, um, sometimes I see a lot of white. I feel like it's the white of the sky. When I'm in a deep meditation, my body is moving. It's almost as if internally I feel an electric feeling. And I don't know if that's called kundalini or if that's some type of divine connection. I wonder if you've experienced that. So it sounds like two things going on. There's, there's light, there's, there's a white light, and there's also a sense of uh, energy or electricity tingling. Uh-huh. Moving while I'm in meditation, and it's almost the divine experience that's coming down and inside of me. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Is it sharp or is it gentle? Sharp. Yeah. Powerful. And if I'm talking with my deaf friends through our phone, which is called a video phone, I see orbs like lights that are in my space my friend was looking at me on the video phone and my friend also saw these orbs around me so I don't know if this is an energy that I'm putting out or if these are dead spirits around me or what yeah well who knows And so from the perspective of this practice, we're, it's a very, um, how do you say, well, uh, so one quality of mindfulness is, some call it bare attention, B-A-R-E, bare attention. Um, and it's attention that, attention that is... Um, uh, to some degree, 
free from our conceptual overlay or our stories about our experience. So we're coming down to the, the raw basics and simplicity of the experience. And so, so we're, we're letting go of the tendency to interpret what's happening, whether it's light or color or sound or energy or electricity or whatever. And we're just staying with the simple experience. And that's mostly how we relate to these kind of phenomena. Whether it's energy, light. There are many interesting phenomenological experiences that happen with meditation. Like typically light and energy, tingling, whether it feels like it comes from inside or outside. Our practice is simply to notice and to not create a story around it, but to stay curious. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, a couple of questions. This lady behind you and then lady over here and then we're going to shift gears. In fact, I'm just going to take this one and then we're going to shift into a meditation. I'll your question at the end. Um, so I found the walking meditation really lovely um, and it was different than I really thought it would be. However, <laughs> when I came across somebody that I knew, um, it, it shifted everything. So it was really easy with people I don't know to just walk on by and feel things flowing. But how do you, how do you disconnect from, I, I, I don't know, people that you know? I mean, it doesn't even have to be somebody you know that well, but you recognize. It, and I've, I guess I felt like I was doing it wrong. <laughs> felt like you were what? Like I was doing it wrong. Ah, uh, yeah. So what did you do when you walked past someone you knew? I had, you know, oh, that whole I recognize you uh-huh. going on. Right. Sounds very natural. Yeah. And but, then? You know, it took me away from flowing, I guess. <laughs> right, right. And then what happened? Well, then I came back. To your body? Yeah. And then what happened? Life went on. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. So that's the practice. Right. Okay. Yeah. So there's a teacher... Um, there's a style of practice in Burmese uh, Theravada Buddhism that's um, it's, it's a moment to moment noting practice it's called like Akinika Samadhi A-K God knows how to spell this A-K-I-N-N-I-K-A Samadhi which is gathered attention collected attention and um, uh, when you go for an interview with him a meeting on a meditation retreat you know, you report your experience, and you might say, "Oh, I was no- I was walking mindfully, and then I noticed someone I knew, and then the whole wave of thoughts and feelings came up, and it took me out of my physical experience." And then he'll say, "And then what happened next?" And say, "Well, I noticed that that, 
and then and then as I walked past them, my mind subsided and I came back to my body. And then what happened next? Oh, and then I was able to feel my feet again. And then what happened next? Oh, and then a thought came about, maybe that was so-and-so after all. I noticed that. And then what happened? And then I let it go because I knew that was a thought and a distraction. So I came back to feeling my feet. And then what happened next? Oh, and then the bell rang. And then what happened next? Oh, I was happy that meditation was over. And then what happened next? <laughs> and then I laughed. And then, you know, that's the practice, right? So we, we, we sort of, we, we kind of, kind of interrupt that flow with making something out of any number, innumerable particular experiences. Light, color, recognition of a friend, am I doing it right? Right, All these various things. And it's just, oh, this is what's happening now. Now I'm doubting my practice. Oh, now I'm getting interested in something else. Now I'm loving the birds. Now I'm bored and want lunch. Now I'm enjoying the step. Oh, now I've, wow, that next step was the most amazing step I've ever taken in my life. Wow, look at that. I'm really doing great. Oh, a moment of pride. Look, I'm better than everybody else. Oh, look at that. (laughs) And on it goes, right? And that's life, right? That's being human. We're just full of these wild thoughts, feelings, experiences, images. And it's like, great. And what's happening? Who cares what happened 10 seconds ago? Oh, now I'm taking another step. And now there's someone crossing my path who looks like my mom. And now it's another step. And that's, that's what we're learning to be present for. It's the flow of experience. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, and that does lead me on to a little bit to what I wanted to say. Um, and back to your question about, about you know, what's this? <laughs> People often say, what is feeling my breath got to do with, with my suffering? <laughs> What has this navel gazing got to do with life, right? And it's a good question. <laughs> I'm not going to answer it. Um, well, I am. Through the day, I will answer that. It's a complex question. So here's a cartoon that might help. So you can't really see this. Maybe you can. So it's pictures of two people, and uh, one person has a whole like lightning storm coming out of their head. And one person's the person saying, what the hell is that coming out of your head? This big kind of tornado of color and explosion. And the other person says, oh, it's just my mind. (laughs) And oh, just my mind is one of the many things that causes a lot of suffering for us, right? Like the way that we judge ourselves, the way that we compare ourselves and put ourselves down the way that we're mean to ourselves, the ways that we believe we're unworthy or stupid or unlovable or ugly or whatever our story is, right? There's many, many ways we create suffering for ourselves. So, this first meditation was just simply cultivating a little attention, a little awareness, right? And and over the day, we'll spread that awareness to all of our experience. So, that awareness begins to reveal different things, like our mind, like our body, like our pain, like our difficult emotions, like our reactions. And this is where we begin to see how we can create uh, unnecessary distress or anxiety for ourselves. So there's a line from uh, the poet Hafez from a poem 
Hafez, spelled H-A-F-I-Z. Um, and in part of this poem, he says, you have all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. Right? Which we do. You wake up, maybe you had a late night, maybe you're on the town, you drank too much, you had a headache, maybe you're hungover, and you start beating yourself up because you said you wouldn't drink, but you did, and you drank too much, and you start judging yourself, and you feel grumpy, and you look around your house, and it's messy, and you start judging your house, and, you, and we just start, we have all these ingredients, comparing, judging, putting ourselves down, whatever. We make ourselves miserable. Without awareness, we don't see it. We just keep acting it out. With awareness, we have a chance to see it, understand it, interrupt it, and release it. He also says you have all the ingredients to turn your life and existence into joy. Mix them. Bit of awareness, bit of patience, bit of kindness, bit of generosity, bit of love. These are things that we're cultivating here that actually support our, our happiness. So, um, so the, the second foundation, and I want us to pay just a little attention to it before lunch, and I want to read you a story um, that uh, somebody sent me for the book, which is um, which I can't find. Um, the second foundation is a, is a slightly odd foundation. It's, it's called Mindfulness of Feeling Tone which isn't really a word that we use in English, so it requires some explanation. It's the effective quality of experience. So, um, for example, um, and you'll explore this at lunch, right? Maybe you, maybe you love straw. Think about whatever, whatever fruit you love to eat. Maybe it's a big ripe strawberry. It's summertime and the, you bite that strawberry. What does it feel like? It's pleasant. Right? Or you take a walk in the beautiful nature and it's sunny and warm or whatever it is that you like, it feels pleasurable. Right? Our experience is either pleasurable or it's unpleasant. Like think about the last time you had some physical pain, which might be two seconds ago. Uncomfortable, unpleasant. And the other third type of experience is neutral, where we neither feel it pleasurable or painful. So a little example of how deep-rooted this is. So this is from uh, my friend Leslie and talking about her three-year-old son, who I know quite well, Kiko. Kiko's morning meltdown today was because he made up his mind that he wanted syrupy waffles. My no, an offering of oatmeal with honey and a few rainbow sprinkles, led to a good 15-minute cry. He was so stuck on the idea of syrup that he couldn't relax enough to hear me explain that he could have a waffle after he ate his oatmeal. He'd calm down for a few seconds and look at the oatmeal just long enough to tell me how it was too bumpy or not bumpy enough. Eventually, he found a book he wanted to read, me to read at him at the table and calm down enough to actually enjoy the sprinkles on his oats. While his three-year-old tendency to freak out over whatever it is he wants in that moment can be challenging, thankfully, it's matched by his ability to just let go as soon as something else shiny catches his attention. That's kind of like the whole teachings in a nutshell, really. And that if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. Um, that's life. We're like three-year-olds. Oh, that looks good. I want it. Oh, I want the bowl. Great, I'm going to take it home. No, I can't have it. <laughs> a little exaggerated, but you know, basically that's what we're like. I want it. 
I don't, don't take it away from me. And I hate it. And get lost. And that's what we do all the time. Based on this simple feeling of pleasantness or pleasure or unpleasantness or pain. Right? And so we move through life moment to moment, minute by minute, literally minute by minute, if not second by second, withdrawing, recoiling away from things that we don't want, don't like, or unpleasant, things that we want are pleasant, and we hold on to, we grab them, we attach, we fixate, we demand. Right? So if you don't know what I'm talking about, just think about a relationship that you're in, whether it's a relationship relationship or a friend relationship or a family relationship, how often that habit comes. It's pleasurable. The next moment they say something, it's quickly unpleasurable. Quickly you feel defensive or reactive or angry or hurt or blah, 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 blah. We feel it in our body. Right? The sun comes out, oh, warmth, pleasant, pleasant. The clouds come out, gets cold, windy, we get cold, unpleasant, and we shrink and we recoil. We're biological organisms. Right? We open and close like flowers. And, um, and I'm going to talk more in the afternoon about why this is so important. Because this is the seed of, of really the seed of the Buddha's teaching around how we create so much suffering. By grabbing and, and attaching to pleasant pleasure, sensory experience, and resisting and avoiding and hating and judging and fearing the unpleasant. And mindfulness is simply learning to be aware of this process and stay steady in the middle of it. Just as in, in meditation, right? there, in, in, this, in the course of half an hour meditation, there will be hundreds of moments that are pleasurable and hundreds of moments that are unpleasurable and hundreds of moments that are neutral and somewhat uninteresting. That's life. And we learn to stay steady in the midst of it as a way to learn to stay steady in the midst of whatever experience is happening in life. <clears throat> so I'm going to read you this piece. We're going to do a short meditation. I'm aware that it's lunchtime, so I'm going to keep it short, but I want us to experiment with this a little bit. This is from Zen teacher Jan Chosen Bays. She says, um, in this passing moment... I vow to choose what is. So she's so the, the orientation of this this piece is um, about a um, how we just meet experience and allow it to be as it is. Uh, so in this passing moment, I vow to choose what is. If there is cost, I choose to pay. If there is need, I choose to give. If there is pain, I choose to feel. If there is sorrow, I choose to grieve. When burning, I choose heat. When calm, I choose peace. When starving, I choose hunger. When happy, I choose joy. Whom I encounter, I choose to meet. What I shoulder, I choose to bear. When it is my death, I choose to die. Where this takes me, I choose to go. Being with what is, I respond to what is. So there's a lot more to say about that. That might sound very passive to some of you. This isn't about being passive, but it's about meeting our experience and ourselves as it is. So let's do a little meditation practice just to feel into that.
So closing your eyes. Bring awareness to your body. So we're going to sit with a more expansive awareness. And just be present to the variety of sensations in your body. So notice the strongest sensation maybe in your sit bones or your knees, ankles, hands. And as you sit, just notice if in this physical experience, notice if this general experience of your body is pleasant or pleasurable. Or whether it's unpleasant, uncomfortable or painful. Or it's neither pleasant or unpleasant, somewhat neutral. So with each experience that you notice in awareness, just notice, sense into whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Whether that's a sound or a sensation or an emotion or a thought or the breath. Just every now and then ask yourself is this pleasant, pleasurable, unpleasant, uncomfortable or painful or neutral? And let your attention move around your experience. Awareness of the body, awareness of the heart, awareness of the mind, awareness of sounds, sensations, sights. And just be aware of this changing nature of experience. So we'll sit like this for about five minutes and then I'll wrap us up for close the meditation before lunch.
So in the last couple of minutes of the meditation, again, noticing what's present now. Sounds, sensations, breath, feelings, thoughts. And see if you can notice, is this pleasant or unpleasant or neutral? And with that awareness, also noticing your attitude or relationship. If it's unpleasant, do you notice a resistance, a pushing away, a rejection, a judgment, a fear of the unpleasant? If it's pleasant, noticing the relationship to wanting, liking, enjoying, holding on, demanding, grasping, attaching. Or the neutral, which we tend to not care much for. We space out, become disinterested. Is that pleasant? Because that means, oh good, the meditation's over? Or does it mean, oh no, I was so enjoying that meditation. No, it's unpleasant. I don't want to move. I don't want to... So this is perfect that we're just starting to explore this topic because, um, uh, you know, in, well, lunch lunch eating is a great way to explore this experience, right? So we eat generally things we like. Hopefully you brought some food that you like. Assume you did. Um, Notice as you're eating, right? not just being aware of your food, noticing the colors and the texture and the smells and the tastes, but also notice this quality, this, this slightly subtle quality of pleasure or pleasantness. Right? When you taste that you bite something you really love like chocolate or whatever it is you brought can you feel not just that it's nice tasting but it's oh it's pleasurable when something's pleasurable it it sort of relaxes our nervous system like oh I love the taste of for me this would be uh, New York cheddar kettle chips like that's kind of what does it for me salty crunchy doesn't get better than that um, or chocolate, or other unhealthy things. Notice the pleasantness, enjoyment. Notice the wanting more. Notice the wanting to eat more. I used to have this practice. I would only let myself eat one potato chip at a time. I could only put another one in after I'd swallowed it. <clears throat> so notice. So notice when something's pleasant. 
we tend to want to shovel it in. Right? We're like waiting there, like, hurry up, you know, swallow. Because, why? Because we want to reinforce that pleasant sensation. We're craving pleasant sensation. But this is a great simple insight. We don't realize that we're already having the pleasant sensation. We don't need to shovel more in. We can actually just enjoy and savor, oh, right, this is really pleasurable, this salad. It's really fresh and healthy. And then we take another bite. Oh, it's still pleasurable and healthy. Ten bites in because of habituation. It's like, oh, it's kind of boring. I'm ready for dessert. And after five bites of dessert, ah, it was really super cool in the first bite. After the tenth bite, it's like, eh, I'm ready for coffee. You know, because of habituation. Right? Things go and the things change. So be aware of that pleasantness. Maybe you finish your lunch and like, oh, that's really unpleasant. I've got no food left. I'm still hungry. Right? Or maybe I've eaten too much. Oh, I'm really unpleasant feeling. Or you're sitting outside and they feel the sun on your face. Oh, pleasantness. Or maybe you don't want the sun because you've got skin sensitive. Oh, unpleasant. Right? This, the, the, whether we find something pleasant or unpleasant is not because of the object. It's because of our experience and relationship to it. Two people, one loves the sun, one hates it. Two people, one loves the apple, one hates it. Right? It's not in the thing, it's in our experience of it. So notice that this range, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, or pleasure, pain, neutral, if that's an easier way to frame it. And notice the response. Notice the reaction. Can we just be present with the pleasant pleasure, or is there a grip? Can we notice the unpleasant physical sensation, discomfort, cold, or is there a reaction? That's what we're attending to, the reactive part of our mind, because it's the reactivity that causes suffering. The sun or the cold or whatever it is that is causing the unpleasantness isn't the source of the suffering. It's our reactivity to it. From the perspective of mindfulness, it's just more sensation. So have fun with that. Don't eat too much because you'll be sleepy in the afternoon. Once you finish lunch, um, you know it's beautiful. Take a walk. There's some walks up the hill. Or if you'd like, come back in here and meditate. Or if you'd like, come back in here and rest and take a nap. I like to, I like to nap after lunch, so please feel free to do this. The, the, we're keeping the building in silence. I'm going to suggest that we all stay in silence all day. If for some reason that it's imperative you talk to somebody, then please take your lunch and go down into the meadow or somewhere and talk quietly. Um, and we'll come back uh, so if, if the bell ringer can ring the bell at 2 o'clock and we'll come back at 2.05 enjoy your lunch it's a beautiful day enjoy nature and how awareness reveals nature etc so I'm wondering how you're all doing how was lunch and Walking, I saw a lot of you walking, which I'm happy to see. Beautiful day for hiking. I'm particularly curious how your exploration was of this quality of this second foundation, feeling tone, effective quality. The movement of pleasure and pain, of pleasantness and unpleasantness and neutral. Any comments, questions, observations about that?
So if we can get mic runners. So first uh, lady in the, yep, and then later in the pink. Hi, uh, I had a bit of an aha moment. I think um, I'm always cold, so when we were here at the beginning and it was warm, I was happy, and then when they said, oh, we're going to turn the heat down, I was like, oh, no, and then um, I realized, then I was feeling goosebumps, and I thought, oh, well, I've just always labeled goosebumps as unpleasant in my mind, but what if I just sat here for a minute and just felt what it feels like instead, so thank you. Yeah, and what happened when you reframed goosebumps from being unpleasant to something else? I did not die from the cold. It was amazing. <laughs> You're still here. Look at that. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting, um, uh, particularly when, when something's extreme, uh, whether it's pain or cold or heat, you know, sometimes it flips from being pl- un- deeply unpleasant to pleasant, actually. Um, you know, sitting with physical pain, as long as you're not damaging your body, your ligament, your you know your, your joints, can be a really great place to see how the same experience we would like say your foot goes numb. If you sit with it, you know, we label it as unpleasant, but it might be full of all kinds of actually quite pleasant sensations that that we would normally associate with pleasant, like warmth, tingling, etc. And so. Um, and we can actually, you know, like I play with this um, working with cold, like you just did, where I'm just, I just label, oh, it's just unpleasant, it's unpleasant. And it doesn't, it, as long as I don't make a, make a story that it's wrong or bad, it's just sensation. And I can find a lot more equanimity with it. Yeah. Yeah. So, there's a whole more to say about that, but I'm going to move on, yes. Well, I want to thank you for giving me the words pleasurable and unpleasurable because it seemed like every bite I took, I was saying pleasurable. (laughs) And then later on, I was really sensing the tastes and it was so nice and I was in the sun and just slowly, you know, being outside and I guess what I'm saying is that I never labeled my eating experience Mm -hmm. as pleasurable. Mm -hmm. I just noticed everything, you know? But to add that word, a label, it's like it really enhanced the experience just by saying that word to myself. Oh, this is pleasurable. This is pleasurable. You know, and anyway, it was kind of... So I'm thanking you for giving me that word that I think I'll relate to other things too. Yeah. Yeah, well, you're, you're bringing up an important point, a couple of things. One is, when we acknowledge something, it usually flourishes. And um, as it happened in your experience, when you acknowledge, oh, this is actually pleasant, then we feel the pleasantness of the thing that we're not that we're sort of enjoying, but not really conscious of of it or why we're why it's enjoying it. Oh, I'm sitting in the sun; feels warm. My body relaxes. All of that's pleasant until it gets too warm, and then oh, and now it's unpleasant. I'm getting sweaty. I'm getting heat. I don't like getting hot. That's unpleasant. You know, so 
um, awareness affects experience and and we can use it in very skillful ways so another thing that that you're pointing to is usually we um, you know we we're we're seekers of pleasurable experience, right? That it's a survival mechanism. We go towards warmth, safety, food, etc. And so we're hardwired for that to be pleasant because it makes us orient to things that are sustaining for us, right? For the most part. Yet, um, there's something about when we get conscious of that process, when we actually acknowledge something and let it in, Again, it's a way, it's, it's called savoring. Right? We savor an experience. It allows, it to, it allows us to really take it in. And um, it's something, you know, because, because of our hard wiring, we have a negativity bias. We look to the what's wrong. We look to the unpleasant. We look to, you know, what's negative. It's really important that we also nourish and support and incline the mind towards that which is okay, that which is good, that which is pleasing, that which is pleasant, that which is nourishing and, and joyful. And to really let, it, let ourselves soak it in. Okay? Because of the habit of fixating on the negative, right? Like the news is a good example, mostly oriented to the negative. But that's not actually, the news is not a representation of, of the subjective experience of life. Our subjective experience is much more positive than, say, the news portrays for various reasons. Um, so, and given the stress that we live under and both social work and inner stress, then it's really, it behooves us for our own well-being and resilience to really acknowledge and take in the good to savor the pleasant experience. You know, so typically how we do it, you know, we're walking along, maybe we're, you took a walk with a friend and you're chatting. It's like, oh, look at that, it's beautiful up there. And like, oh yeah, it's cool, isn't it? Yeah, tell me about your problems now. You know, I mean, it's, it's how we, you know, we're driving like, oh, that's cool. You know, you're walking like, oh, that's cool. And we give it like, what, maybe a half second, you know, maybe the hummingbird stays for two seconds and we stay there. But we don't, it's like, hey, you see something beautiful, pause, stop. Stop. What are you doing? Take it in. You know, they say 20 seconds is, is a good amount of time to savor a positive experience. So it's a very healthy, sustaining thing to do for our well-being. And I think we don't orient enough towards that which is good. And there's lots of good. Right? There's lots of, you know, and I'm, I'm an environmentalist and we're living under an ecological crisis and yet, it's spring, and it's beautiful, and it's flowering, and it's abundant, and it's raining, and it's green, and right? Both are true. If I just look at the data, I get depressed. If I look outside the window and take a walk, I feel rejuvenated. Right? That's called good self-care. Right? Living with balance. Yes? So... I discovered that I could be thinking two things at the same time. I wasn't necessarily my breath, but I was focused on crunchy, soft, you know, whatever, salty, sweet. 
and saying pleasurable at the same time. So I was really noticing plus labeling, which really did um, amaze me how much it enhanced every bite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so that was all. Just yeah. I appreciated that. Mm-hmm. Thank keep, you. Keep it up. Yes, over here in the purple. Wait, wait for the mic. I was just wondering how you can savor without grasping. Uh, yes. Once I start savoring, I start grasping. <laughs> I, just, I don't know if that's appropriate. It's not a reaction to what I did, but I, I do that. Yeah, yeah. No, I. That's. It's a fine line. Yeah. I just went to see the Monet exhibition at the the Young in the San Francisco. Fantastic exhibition. Um. And one of the places I notice that the most is when I go see a art show. And I'm looking at a painting like one of his lilies. And I can't tear myself away because I'm kind of stuck. It's so beautiful. I'd like, okay, I should go to the next painting, but I like this one too much. <laughs> oh, that's grasping, <laughs> right? Which is, you know, a metaphor for how we grasp with pleasant things. And um, So... Uh, you know, again, it comes back to awareness. It's not that that shouldn't happen. It does happen. Right? Something's pleasant. We want it to continue. We want to take it home. We want to preserve it. We want to prolong it. We want to hold it. We want to own it. We want to... Right? And so we just notice, oh, look at that. There's the grasping. And we notice how it immediately starts obscuring the pleasure. Right? When I'm looking at the painting, oh, it's beautiful. When I start wanting like can't tear myself away, that quickly becomes unpleasant. I feel it's kind of sticky and kind of like tense and it goes from appreciation to tightness, grasping. So we just notice that. The noticing usually helps soften it. You know, and then maybe you shift your attention to something else. Or you reflect that, you know, that it's, you know, there's a wisdom reflection like, it's going to change. It's going to pass. You know? So, so rather than making, rather than thinking it shouldn't happen or making a problem out of it, it's just oh yeah, oh look, there's enjoyment. Oh look, there's grasping. Oh, and there's letting go, and there's more grasping, and there's letting go, and you know. so it's the, it's the awareness that liberates. There's a hand over here. Excuse me, and that second meditation this morning what came up for me was judgment mm-hmm. and how that is an integral part of me uh-huh. and uh, you know I was raised in a family that was very judgmental and opinionated and I'm wondering if you could address that um, what I've been learn- trying to learn is that like those negative emotions not to say go away, but to stay with them. So I would really appreciate a little bit more information on that. So when you say judgment, do you mean you're criticizing yourself? You're judging yourself? Er- oh, me and everybody else. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's just so automatic. It happened here after that meditation. It was sure. like, oh God, yeah. I can't get away from this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well again, it's very normal. You know, anybody judging here? Anybody good? <laughs> right? Silly question. Right? So I wrote a book about it. You might, if you have that 
problem, you might want to read my book. It's called, uh, whatever it's called. <laughs> it's out there for sale. Make peace with your mind. Um, and it's a very, you know, it's how mindfulness and compassion helps free you from the inner critic. So it's 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 using these tools of mindfulness and kindness as a way to work with that. And we need both of those skills. We need the awareness to know it's happening. We need the awareness to know the impact, the painfulness, how it separates us, how it makes us feel miserable, how it distorts our perception and our reality. Right, All that's useful to see clearly with the mindfulness. And we need kindness because it's so bloody painful that we need self-compassion. We need to uh, forgive ourselves. We need to um, see the goodness in ourselves. We need to cultivate loving kindness rather than hatred and, and, and you know, crit- criticism. Um, in the meditation, you're mostly just recognizing when judging's happening. You can label it, oh, judging, judging. And then you drop it and you shift your attention back to something that's not that. Breath, body, whatever, you, whatever you're focusing on. Um, if you want to bring a little more attention to it, then you... you, you many things. One of them is you feel how it feels in your body to be judging, which is usually contracted, usually kind of icky. Um, and um, you can do various kinds of practices like uh, a loving kindness practice where every time you notice you're judging yourself, you know, like, oh, that was a crap meditation, that was a stupid thing to say, then you add uh, a phrase of loving kindness, may I be happy? Yeah, but you're such a jerk. Yeah, but may you be free of suffering. Yeah, but you're really, nobody's going to like you. And may I be free of suffering. And you just, see, so you're, you're seeing that the critic is just a bunch of words we give authority to. It's a point of view that's not usually objective or accurate. And um, and so we're preferencing something else, preferencing the breath or loving kindness. We're shifting our attention away from that negative stream. And the loving kindness practice is, is which is a beautiful complement to this practice, is a way to support a different kind of voice, which is one which is affirming and loving and kind and well-wishing rather than negative. Um, but please read the book. It's you know it's a, it's a big topic. It requires a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I wrote it because most people I know, and certainly most students I know, are really afflicted. Right? I would say it's the one of the, if not the primary cause of our self-created suffering. And there's many ways we suffer in life. I'm not talking about those. The big picture. You know, but the inner suffering that we create, the way that we're cruel and harsh to ourselves, is a tremendous source of suffering. Please, somebody. and we can do good. We can do good work transforming it and not being so bothered by it. You know, I started with a very, very strong, nasty critic, and um, you know. It doesn't bother me that much anymore. It's still around. It's not like it disappears. But I don't, you know, it's like an old little yapping dog that's like, oh, please. <laughs> Here's a bone. <laughs> Go bother my neighbor, you know. So, please. 
I don't know why. Um, really close to your mouth. I don't know why, but the saying "ignorance is bliss" keeps coming back to me. Mm. And tr- how does that relate? That that might be a very not not nice way of saying something, but I was kind of like brought up with that saying "ignorance is bliss." <laughs> and how does that re- re- uh, relate to being mindful? Right. Yeah. Um, could we get a little more sound on the handhelds? They, they seem to be a little low. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, uh, ignorance is bliss. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I grew up with that. We all grew up with that, I think. Um, whoever came up with that was really deluded. <laughs> uh, it's an interesting phrase. What does that mean, ignorance is bliss, right? Because, you know, in this, from this, it's the opposite of what this teaching is. Wisdom is happiness, right? Knowing Clarity is happiness, right? or support for happiness. Right? It, 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 it's the illusion that putting our head in the sand, we can avoid suffering. Right? Good luck with that. You know. But, you know, we all do it to some degree. We deny, we repress, we stuff, we drink, we act out, we get busy, we do all kinds of things to, to, not, to not look at reality right? until that creates so much suffering that we actually start paying attention. And then, and then we realize, oh, that actually doesn't work. We, you know, there's, I'd say it's more like um, you know, anesthetizing ourselves is temporarily relieving of suffering. That's how I would translate that phrase as. You know, we can anesthetize ourselves for a while with, with enough things and it feels sort of relaxing. Right? We've had a hard day at the office, we turn on Netflix, and we do some binge watching, and it seems to temporarily relieve the stress of the crappy day at work. And then we do that tomorrow, because it's another crappy day at work. Right? And then we kind of start running out of, we start desperately asking our friends, what series are you watching? I'm, I'm running out of series. Right? And it temporarily sort of suppresses the, the dissatisfaction. Until that dissatisfaction, until that whatever strategy we're using doesn't work anymore. And then we have to, have to like, okay, what's going on? Oh, I hate my job. That's what needs attention. Why do I hate my job? Let's pay attention. Let's see why I'm so miserable and why I keep binge watching. I'm not saying you always binge watch because you hate your job, but as an example. right? So, um, uh, so there's a temporary relief from 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 sort of suppressing an avoidance, but it doesn't lead to our resolution. If it did, we wouldn't be here. We'd be watching Netflix. You know, we'd have pints of ice cream around, and you know, a few beers. And right, if it worked, great. Get the Ben and Jerry's out. Doesn't work. It works temporarily, and we delude ourselves. So, yes, at the front here. I have another take on that. All right, give me it. What ignorance is bliss means to me is if I willfully ignore um, reality, then I then I don't have to sit with the pain of reality. Right. Because 
you know, if I buy something that's made by slaves, uh, but I, I, I don't choose to read the information, so I don't really understand that it's made by slaves, but I get this nice scarf, <laughs> you know, not that this is made by slaves, of course, but um, then, then I can ignore just the pain of human reality, right. of human suffering, right. really. Yeah. And I don't have to take it on. Right, right. Except it's, right, it's, it's a deluded bliss. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like it, it's, it's fluff. It's just living in the... Right, right. Always and, staying and, above. And, right, and we live in a culture that's really, really good at supporting us to stay in ignorance. Let's get distracted with whatever the, you know, I mean, just, just watch TV. I mean, talk about keeping us ignorance and distracted, right? But I'm not, I'm not seeing America high on the National Bliss Index or any culture, you know, for that matter, you know. So, um, so it speaks very much to what we're speaking about, what I want to speak about today, which is, um, this afternoon, which is uh, the third foundation is uh, exploring, so the third foundation is mindfulness of, mindfulness of mind, heart, mind and heart. And, um, and it directly is in relationship to the second foundation, this, this feeling tone of experience. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Um, and so, and it, it will, the, the third, second foundation makes more sense in the context of the third foundation. So in the third foundation, the Buddha talked about knowing when the mind and the heart is is caught in grasping or not, caught in hatred and resistance or not, caught in delusion or not. Knowing when your mind and heart is, is caught in reactivity or not. And as we've explored a little bit, the react, much of the reactivity comes out of our reactivity towards grasping at a reaction to the pleasantness and the unpleasantness and the neutral quality of experience. Can you say that last sentence one more time? Um, the, uh, I know what I said. Um, the, the reactivity that, is, that we're speaking about in the third foundation, the, the, grasping react, the, the, the grasping or aversion to experience arises out of our reaction to the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral nature of experience. So it's our inability to simply be present to how life is always constantly pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, always changing, that we get, we get tossed around. It's part of being human. So I want to read a sto- another story that speaks to this. Um, so, um, and, and actually the uh, that comment that was made earlier um, about running. So there's a lovely line from Achan Cha, who was a teacher, teachers in this tradition. He said, by running away from suffering, we run towards it. By running away from suffering, which we all do, because we're human, it's a natural thing to do. Who wants to suffer? I'm going to run away from it. And we all have our running away of choice. You know, busyness, right? overworking, 
By running away from suffering, we run towards it. Right? We run to Hawaii. You know, we move to Hawaii thinking, oh, I'll just get away from you know, my ex or my whatever, my job or my stress. And then we, we get there and then we open our suitcase and it's like, and we look in the mirror, it's like, oh shit, they showed up too. As in I showed up, as in my mind and my stuff showed up, you know. So, um, you know, so we run and we try to avoid and eventually it doesn't work. And, um, and then we realize at some point, you know, we have to sit in the midst of our experience. I'm actually read something else. This is from uh, Suzuki Roshi. He says, you don't really know what it means to sit in meditation until there's some great difficulty in your life, not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love, and then you're tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital, and there's nothing you can do. And finally you take a seat in the midst of your fears and sorrows and thoughts and worries, and you just sit in the middle of it all. And that's the moment you begin to understand the power of your practice. Right? So this is, this is the opposite of ignorance is bliss. This is sitting in the middle of it and going, okay, what is this? This morning I feel lonely. Or this morning I feel despair. Or I feel sad. Or I feel grandiose. Or I feel like a failure. Or I feel, who knows, whatever difficult thing passes through your mind when you wake up in the morning. Um, I feel overwhelmed. I feel deficient. Right? Is this any of this familiar territory? Right? Just part of being human, right? I feel anxious about my relationship. I feel complete despair about my job. I feel overwhelmed by being a parent, I feel terrified about getting old alone. I, you know, there's just so many things that are hard to be human. And the practice is inviting us, how do we turn towards that? How do we open to the vulnerable nature of being human with kindness, with awareness, with care? And put a hand on our heart and say, yeah, this is hard. This is hard to be human. It's hard to sit with myself when I'm anxious or when I'm feeling lonely or when I'm feeling self-hating or when I'm feeling depressed. Right? It's not, you know, it's only just it's one side of human experience. There's also a whole beautiful, joyful side of experience. But I'm pointing to the hard stuff. It's not necessarily hard to sit with yourself when you're feeling joy. Right? We're, not, we're not coming here, you know, I'm in a really hard time with my bliss at the moment, can you help me? I don't hear much of that, you know. No, I'm hearing it's hard to be with, my, with the feeling of emptiness inside. So I'm, I'm uh, remembering this story. I was talking to my dad on the way over here. And um, I usually call him, actually, when I'm driving the Spirit Rock. It's a kind of ritual and um, he uh, was, we were sitting in a pub in England, because that's what you do in England, you go to the pub. That's the therapy office. And, um, and we were having this heart-to-heart, which we do sometimes after a few beers. Well, he was having a few beers, I was, you know, anyhow, whatever. And, um, 
and he had a really wretched early life. He was fostered. He grew up during the war in, in England and um, was fostered, had numerable parent uh, caregivers, and he lost, he didn't remember the names. It was passed around a lot. So a lot of trauma, a lot of wounding, and been with him all his life, a lot of sadness and grief and self-hatred and judgment. And, and, um, and he's, you know, he's kind of coming to that stage in his life. He's um, actually going back for his 80th birthday and he's wanting to resolve some of these, this, this old painful wounding. And, um, and I, I said to him, I said, you know, dad, you know, I'm, I do this, this meditation stuff that's, it's all about like, you know, being with one's pain. It's like, I, I know a little bit about this. Like, <laughs> you know, if you open, I, I've got a few ideas for you. There's, there's practices and tools and, and uh, he says, yeah, I know, I know. I should do some of that stuff. It's good. I know. And, and uh, anyhow, so it turns out he, uh, I said, you know, there's this great course called mindful self-compassion. It's a, it's a way of working with, you know, ways, ways that we hate ourselves. And he lives in this tiny little village in the middle of nowhere in southern England. And um, turns out that in the next tiny little hamlet, there's a woman teaching an eight-week mindfulness self-compassion course. Ne- the next week, right? And there's only like eight qualified teachers in England. And she's like, we're in this village. So he signs up. And he does it eight, all eight weeks, and he does the day long. And he calls me. I'm in Mexico. I'm teaching in Mexico, and I'm like, "Dad, why are you calling me in Mexico? It's really expensive." He's like, "Oh, I just finished the course. It was amazing. It's really, really changed my life. It's beautiful." And he said, "I know. I've just started. I know I've got a long way to go." I said, "Yeah, probably. Um, <laughs> it's how it goes. It's slow. It's slow work, you know." And I went back in April and we, we were meditating together in the morning and um, he's signing up for weekend silent retreats and, and he's really doing his work. He's really hanging out with some of that old trauma and pain and wounding and self-hatred and lack of self-love and uh, learning how to love himself and accept himself and sit with the pain of the trauma. And it's beautiful. And he's 79 years old. And he's doing his practice. And um, that's not running away. Right? He spent a lifetime running away. And he admitted it. And I, I write about it in the book. And so that's sitting in the midst of one's stuff. The unpleasantness, the pain, the judgments, the self-hatred. And finding a place, a little bit of warmth, a little bit of self-acceptance, a little bit of kindness. Right? You know, and it's it's always a little, little by little. You know. Um, and what's beautiful is, you know, that works done in groups. So he's listening to all these other people, all these other fine, I'm sure, beautiful, good people who also hate themselves, who also judge themselves, who are also mean to themselves, who also think they're stupid and unlovable and horrible. And, and, he's, and, and so he's also growing as the heart of empathy. you know, Because I'm sure you know, I'm sure you have friends, and we all do, who go through this same stuff. And they're beating up on themselves, they've got regrets, they think they're stupid or unlovable. Or, and you're thinking... What are you talking about? You're a, you're a lovely person. You're a good person. But so often we can't see it. 
what a good friend is for. So, so with this third foundation of mindfulness, we're turning towards our mind-body experience, turning towards what's going on in our mind, thoughts, ideas, views, judgments, turning towards our heart, feelings, both beautiful, sublime, and painful and difficult, and holding it all with a kind, curious attention. And learning the what happens when we do that. That we can learn awareness, like the sky, has the capacity to hold any experience, however painful. And the more that we cultivate awareness, especially when it's imbued with kindness, then we have even more capacity to, to hold experience. This is from... Uh, teacher Jennifer Wellwood, who um, lost her husband recently. And um, it was really beautiful watching her. I was at the wake, um, and um, so her husband's John Wellwood, some of you may know, is a beautiful writer and teacher. And, um, and so we go into the house, and she's sitting there. So John's laid out on a bed. And she's just sitting in meditation with him, with her hand on his on his on his body. And there's this incredible stillness and, and tremendous love. Just feel this love pouring from her. It's very really touching. So she writes this poem, which I'm sure you know, this poem comes from experience and, and being with her at this moment, which was very, very beautiful and precious, I think was a expression of that. It's called unconditional. Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed. So this is the the essence of the practice. Each thing I flee from pursues me. Each thing I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed. This is the metabolizing process of practice. You know, we have all kinds of funny ideas about what meditation is and what spiritual practice is and what Buddhism is. And, but it's really, it's really a metabolizing, one part of it is it's a metabolizing process. We're metabolizing the raw material of our life with awareness and kindness to find uh, wisdom in relationship to it, 
compassion in relationship to it and ultimately freedom in relationship to it. But it happens through metabolizing, through sitting in the fire of one's stuff. Not through transcending, which is how we like to think of meditation. You, know, you see the pictures, and people are meditating, cross-legged on their desk at work, like nobody ever does. You know, and it, it, it maintains this view of meditation being transcendence. Right? There, is a, there is a transcendent quality to meditation, but it's a different thing. Um, mindfulness is a, is, a, is a metabolizing practice in the grist of our life. And, and there's this, this body of teaching, right? mindfulness of body, mindfulness of this feeling tones, mindfulness of mind and heart, and mindfulness of the, the laws that govern all of that, right? That's a very embodied practice. It's a very moment-to-moment practice. So... I'll read a story that I was going to read and then we'll do some sitting together. So this is also from a student that I put into the book. This following story from a meditation student illustrates this is what I'm talking about. So Anne's husband, A-N-N-E, husband Tom, T-O-M, was diagnosed with lung cancer and a massive brain tumor. Tom had surgery to remove the tumor and underwent intense chemotherapy. Though he was miraculously spared from death, he still has cancer and requires routine tests to monitor its growth. And shared with me the anxiety she feels before getting his results. The sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach, heart racing, gulping in breaths, dizziness, thinking that I might be losing my mind. However, rather than run from these feelings, Anne has been in practicing mindfulness, which has helped her cope. She writes, These feelings still come, but I'm not afraid of them anymore. And she describes the experience of traveling together to get Tom's results from hospital. We are on the bus, and John interlaces his beautiful strong hand in mine. I sense the warmth in his fingers. I notice all the places where our bodies are touching as we sit side by side. We are hip to hip on this bus journey and always heart to heart. I close my eyes. I breathe deeply into this feeling of connectedness and then that becomes the emotion, love. The anxiety has subsided and it has been replaced with love. How did that happen? It happened because I leaned into the discomfort. 
I allowed myself to physically feel it. Not the story, the catastrophizing, the what-ifs, the scary scenarios. Only the feeling. That's the thing with emotions. They must be felt in your body. If you avoid or numb or block them, they don't go away. That clenched stomach, the sweaty armpits, the racing hearts, I have to embrace them. Stay with it. Don't rush to move on. When negative thoughts try and break in, I gently come back to the body, to the breath, to the feeling itself, not the story. Then there's a shift. There's always a shift. That's how this whole mindfulness thing works. So I love that story, right? Here she is in a very, very tender, scary situation, right? She's going to see if her beloved may get a diagnosis that might be one of many, but possibly the last beginning of the end. And she's feeling the fear, the love, and she's leaning in, which is hard to do. It's easier to, you know, ignorance is bliss, shut it down, numb out, put some music on, check out. That seems easier, but of course it's not because we don't resolve the fear and anxiety. We just have to, it just percolates. So, as hard as it is to lean into, it also is actually saving us a lot of extra heartache. And clearly for her, that's a beautiful way she's learned to live in the fire of that vulnerability. So I think of this practice as helping us meet our innate vulnerability. Because we're vulnerable. Right? We're all vulnerable. We could die tomorrow. Everybody we know, anybody we know, could die tomorrow. I just got a text from my friend last night. Got a call, his mother's dying. I got a text this morning, she died. You know? Fortunately, he had gotten there in time. And it was a beautiful family event. But we never know. Right? That's vulnerable. So the more that we can learn how to meet, you know, the day-to-day stuff, the difficult stuff in our own body and our own hearts, right? This is a training for how to meet the bigger stuff. It's the same, it's the same practice. Noticing what's happening. Can I be with it? Can I name it? Can I feel it? Can I allow it? Can I open to it? Can I feel some compassion? Can I notice my fear? Can I notice my reactivity? Can I welcome the whole thing? Yes, no, sometimes. That's how we practice. All right. So, um, let's, again, let's just stand for a moment. We've been sitting for a while. Appreciate your patience for listening to these talks that go on a bit longer than I expect, but So whatever your body needs to move or stretch or I like to swing my arms as a little qigong move just to rotate your spine and but 
So let's um, all sit back together. So there's a cartoon that I sometimes share. I think it must have been written by an English person, and you'll understand why when you hear it. So there's a cartoon of this this guy sitting in this sort of very old-fashioned desk with an old-fashioned intercom to his secretary, and he's leaning over his desk and he's with his hand on the intercom to his secretary. And underneath the, ca- the cartoon, it says, "Miss Jenkins, please get me in touch with my feelings." And so as much as I've been talking about feelings and emotions, you know, for some of us that's very available, right? And I can see a lot of, you know, watery eyes as I'm sharing some of these stories. And yet sometimes it's also not so easy to feel or to connect with our emotions because they're part. So we're used to stuffing them and maybe we just feel numb or feel cut off or dry. or So, um, so in this particular foundation, we're not digging up emotions when, I mean, I, I may explore that a little bit, but just being present to that part of your experience. You know, sometimes we sit in meditation, it's pretty quiet. And so the heart is mellow and the mind's quiet. Or sometimes the mind's really busy. And sometimes there's a lot of emotion and feeling going on. So we're just noticing what's here and noticing the pleasantness or unpleasantness of it and we're noticing our attitude or relationship to it. Can I open to it? Can I not? Am I judging it? Am I not? Am I reacting to it? Am I not? Okay, so sitting upright. Closing your eyes or lowering your gaze if you're feeling sleepy. And of course, if at any time you feel sleepy, because it is the afternoon, can happen, you're welcome to stand up and just continue the meditation wherever you are standing. And if you get sleepy, you can also open your eyes. It keeps you a little more wakeful. And turning the gaze of attention inwards and just sensing your immediate experience, what's present right now as you take your seat. just turn your attention to your heart, your center of your chest. And you may just be curious, what, what, what's present in the, the heart right now?
And it can be helpful at times just to name what's here. If you had to label what feeling is present in your heart, what would you say? And if you don't know, you can guess. Sadness, joy, calm, happiness, anxiety, fear, Sometimes the emotions are subtle, like calm, stillness, ease, peace, openness, curiosity. So just take a minute right now and just tune into what's, what are you feeling in your heart, naming it, feeling where you feel it. And also noticing the changing landscape of your experience. Nothing stays around for very long. Nothing stays the same for very long. Maybe you sat down and you felt ease. And then a troubling thought came and now you feel anxious. And that thought passed and now you're feeling bored. Noticing how the heart and the mind moves quite quickly. Notice how thoughts trigger feelings, feelings, emotions trigger thoughts. And when, particularly when strong feelings are present, can you notice the pleasant or unpleasant or neutral quality? Maybe you're feeling very calm and it feels neutral. Or you're feeling tired and it feels feels unpleasant. Or you feel spacious and light and that feels pleasant. So notice that movement in your heart, in your mind. Notice where you're feeling emotions in your physical experience. In your throat, your heart, your chest, your belly.
And then when there's nothing strong calling your attention, then come back to your physical experience sensing the body. Awareness of sitting. Awareness of the sensations of sitting. Sensing the contact of your body with the ground. And aware of the whole changing physical landscape. The whole variety of sensations. Touching, warmth, coolness, pressure, tingling, heaviness, lightness. And of course feeling the sensations of breath as part of our physical experience. Noticing the movement of inhale, exhale. Expansion, contraction, lightness, heaviness. So having a general awareness of your physical experience, sitting, breathing. If it's helpful for you to stay present, then attune more to the breath, since it's a steady but changing array of sensations. And then from time to time, notice when you're feeling, when strong emotions arise, triggered by thoughts, triggered by sensations or memories or images, naming whatever it is you're feeling, feeling it in the body, notice how it changes. Same way noticing what's happening in the mind. Is the mind quiet, busy, thinking, planning? And in particular with this third foundation of mindfulness, we're looking at our relationship. How you, what's your attitude in relationship to experience? Are you able to accept and allow or not? Are you grasping after some pleasant experience or not? Are you resistant and aversion to something or not? Are you, do you space out because it's neutral or not? So notice what's happening in your body, in your heart, in your mind. Notice this attitude, this relationship. Grasping or not. Resisting and aversion or not disinterested or not. And when nothing's particularly calling the attention, you can rest the awareness with the breath. If your attention wanders, you can come back to the breath. But make sure you include, for the rest of this meditation, awareness of your heart, awareness of your attitude to your experience. And so for the next period of time, maybe 10 or 15 minutes, we will uh, practice in this way.
Where is your attention in this moment? Meeting whatever's here with a clear, curious, kind attention. What is needed to balance your practice in this moment? If you're sleepy, wake up, open your eyes, stand up. If you're agitated, restless, feel and lengthen the exhale to ground. Feel your legs and feet on the ground. Noticing moment by moment whether you're present to breath or body or sounds, feelings, thoughts. Notice your attitude. Are you relating to this moment with reactivity or not? Wanting it to be different or not? Trying to get somewhere else or not? grasping after some particular state or not. Aversion to whatever's here or not. So noticing the presence or absence of reactivity as you Bring awareness moment by moment to what's happening. We'll sit like this for the remainder of the meditation. Being really curious, your ongoing attitude or relationship to your experience. Accepting or resisting.
So 3 p.m. in the afternoon is not the best meditation time. <laughs> Tends to be a little bit sleepy. I'm happy to see that many of you are standing up and um, trying to stay awake. It's really helpful, you know. And you know that's life, right? We have all these great ideas to meditate, and then we sit down and we fall asleep. Or we are spinning out, or whatever is happening, right? And it's like life, same thing. We the practice is: how do I meet this? How do I show up for this? How am I relating to this? Am I hating the sleepiness? Am I judging my body? Am I wishing that something else was happening, more interesting? Right? So it doesn't. From the perspective of mindfulness, it doesn't matter what's happening. What matters for the most part, is how we're relating to it, what the attitude is. Are we reacting or not? Are we judging or not? <clears throat> a couple of cartoons for you. There's a person sitting in medita- meditation and they're saying to themselves, come on, come on, I almost had it. Come on, peace of mind. I don't have a freaking day. Is that it? Is that peace of mind? Am I there yet? Right. Sound familiar? Right. Ooh, that was nice. Ooh, stay. Oh, shit, it's gone. No, please stay. Come back. Oh, no. So that's one side of it, right? That's the grasping side. And then the other side is the aversion side. And this is another cartoon. There's a person standing in line, and uh, there's a bunch of screaming kids in front of them in the line. And uh, the the person's turning around to the person next to them and saying, "I want to learn to live in the in the present moment, just not this moment. <laughs> More like a moment at the beach, right? So that's that's really that's that kind of cartoon of what's happening here, right? We want it. Ooh, is that it? Is that it? Great. Ooh, or." I'm not going to be present for that. Forget that. I'm going to go to sleep and take a nap. I'm going to fantasize about whatever. So, um, you know, so that's the practice. We're learning to see that movement, right? that push-pull contention with reality. There's a famous... Uh, Buddhist text called um, 
verses on the faith mind by the third Zen patriarch. In the beginning of that text he says, the great way, which is this path, this practice, the great way is not difficult for those not attached to their preferences. The great way, the path, life, is not so difficult for those who are not so attached and demanding that their preferences always happen. You know, sometimes we get our way. Most of the time we don't. How do we do when that happens? So I'm going to suggest we do some more walking meditation and I'm going to give you two options for the practice. One is you simply do the same practice as we were doing this morning. You walk up and down. In fact, I'm going to have, suggest you all do that. Walk up and down. Mindfulness of body. Wherever your breath. But have a little more open awareness. So aware of your body and your breath, but also aware of your emotions. Aware of your thoughts. You're just aware of your whole experience. So with your body, but also a more general experience of what else is happening. A little more awareness of the environment you're in. Notice the fresh air, fragrance of the air, the beautiful light, the colors, the flora, the bird life, etc. So you're still grounded in your body, but a little more uh, open awareness to what else is around you. And um, be aware of the movement of the heart. You know, Notice what you're feeling as you go outside. Maybe you step outside and it's like, ah, oh, breath of fresh air, lightness. You know, oh, it's cold. Ooh. Or, oh, nature, thank goodness we're outside. How I love being in the, this winter light. And so just notice how things touch you or move through you. Heart open, closes. Mind open, closes. And notice, as we've been speaking, how you're relating to it. You know, am I, am I present for this? Is this pleasant or unpleasant? Am I liking or not liking? Am I wanting or not wanting? Am I grasping or not grasping? Am I rejecting or not rejecting? So you're just seeing this movement, the inner experience and the outer experience. So we practice like this. I'm going to leave you with a part of a poem, beautiful poem, longer poem. I forget what it's called, but it's by John O'Donohue. And he says, a beautiful Irish poet, former priest, he says, and big nature lover, he says, take refuge in your senses. Open up to all the small miracles you rushed through. Become inclined to watch the way of rain when it falls slow and free. Imitate the habit of twilight, taking time to open to the well of color that fostered the brightness of day. Draw alongside the silence of stone until its silence can claim you. So basically he's pointing to opening the senses, noticing how that touches you, affects you, opens you, etc., So include that as part of your practice. We'll do that for half an hour or so. We'll have a bell at four o'clock. We'll come back. We'll do a
I'll talk a little about the fourth foundation and we'll wrap up. And I'll stay behind if you have questions. Thank you. And if I could just get a volunteer for a second.
So was that walk any different? That having a more open sort of attention, open awareness, and noticing a lot of nodding. Some, yeah. Um, were you noticing pleasant and unpleasant? Were you noticing more pleasant? Some nodding. How many of you were noticing your, the way you're relating to or reacting to experience, right? That third foundation, noticing the liking, not liking, wanting, not wanting, grasping, resistance. Yeah, yes. Question? question is how long do you hold on to the not liking <clears throat> depends what you're looking at <laughs> some things have a long shelf life <laughs> they will remain nameless <clears throat> yeah. yeah right right so <clears throat> so the, the comment was so it just keeps going around in a loop um, so and you bring up an interesting distinction or a point which is there's the, there's the initial experience right? maybe it's a perception, an immediate experience of something here right? like it's cold say, something simple right? something harmless and, and it's unpleasant but it's made more unpleasant and continually unpleasant by, oh, I should have brought my coat. Why didn't I bring my scarf? I should have brought my hat. You never got the right gear. No, no, no. Right? Or, or, or just, just blaming, judging, right? There's, there's ways that we proliferate and make things worse, right? Or maybe we're merrily walking along and we think about someone we're in conflict with and suddenly we get triggered and angry and hurt and annoyed. And, and we notice the unpleasantness of the memory, the unpleasantness of the feeling of reactivity. And we prolong it by keep thinking about the, the problem, the argument. The, you know. So we do a lot of unnecessary prolonging and unnecessary triggering ourselves. Right? So Mark Twain, or this quote attributed to Twain, which I don't think he actually said, but um, <clears throat> the, what's he say, something like, the, the worst things in my life never actually happened. Or, I've known a great many troubles in my life, none of them actually ever happened. Right? That's called triggering unnecessarily unpleasantness and pleasant experience, right? You trigger, you know, Think about a catastrophe scenario. What happens if I get fired? What happens if I lose my beloved? What happens if I, right? And then we get into panic. Nothing's happened except pain in our mind and our heart. So we do want to pay attention to particularly how the mind stories, future thinking, regretting, proliferating, projecting, how that all creates a lot of agitation, just like the judging mind. Um, so, um, 
you know, and some things stay unpleasant. Maybe you have backache or back pain or chronic pain and it is around most of the time and it's unpleasant most of the time. That's just part of being human, right? So we notice the unpleasantness and I just want, it's an important point that uh, somebody brought up in the break. The caveat to all this practice in this mindful attention stuff is um, a key principle of practice is balance. And we need to be able to be to have some kind of balance or balance kind of like an orienting principle in in how in what we're present to and how we're present to it. So for example, maybe you uh, work in an open plan office and somebody in the office really pisses you off. You don't know why, you just hate them. It's not helpful to keep looking at that person every two seconds and going, I hate that son of a bitch. I hate that. Look at them now. Look at the way they're talking. Just look at the way they're dressing. I'm just, it just doesn't help. It's like, move your, turn your desk face that way. Right? But we do that all the time. You know, we have our favorite politicians we love to hate. Let's turn on the TV and get really pissed off for a whole hour. Not so helpful, right? So, um, so the point of practice is balance. And I'm making a joke of this, but I, what this, the serious point around this is um, there are many things that are, that are too hard to be with. Sometimes our pain is physical pain is too hard to be with. Sometimes our emotional pain is too hard to be with. It's too much. We get overwhelmed. We flooded. We drown. We get re-traumatized. So we also need to learn, as well as knowing what's happening, noticing whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, noticing how we react to it, we also want to learn, do I have the resources in this moment to be able to be with it, to handle it, to be able to feel it, to hang out with it? Sometimes I do when I'm feeling energy and you know bright and positive or whatever resourced safe sometimes i'm tired i'm hungry i'm overwhelmed i'm exhausted and i don't have the capacity to feel my grief or my longing or my loneliness or my despair or my depression and in when that's the case then we need to ask ourselves well what's going to help me come to balance given that I'm dealing with chronic physical or emotional pain, say. And so um, there are many times that we need to resource ourselves, it's a kind of language from the trauma world, where, we, where we're grounding and balancing our attention away from that which is triggering and too hard to be with. This is where we take our attention away from something that's causing too much distress. Sometimes we don't have a choice. But sometimes we do. Often we have a do. Often we, we do. Um, it could be as simple as, <clears throat> you know, you're feeling emotional pain and you need to get up and move. You need to go outside and take a walk around your neighborhood. You need to call a friend. You need to take a hot bath. You need to have some food. You need to put some music on and shift the mood. You need to, you know, watch TV and lift something that's uplifting, you know, Take a walk in nature. So there's the key thing around balance. It's not just about passively being with, being with, being with, being with. Sometimes it's not skillful to be with. Sometimes it's skillful to be active and to 
kind of change the channel, change the picture, which is different than avoidance, and it's different than distraction. It's different than it's conscious averting the attention that allows some other quality to arise. So, the Buddha talked about inclining the mind. Where you incline your mind, where you incline your intention, affects your experience. Sometimes we need to incline our attention to something that's uplifting. In fact, a lot of the time, especially given if we listen to the news and, you know, dealing with our own difficult personal life, incline the attention to that which is uplifting. So for me, I go into nature every day. For someone else, it's seeing friends. Someone else, it's their art or their music. For someone else, it's dancing. Someone else, it's reading. Someone else, it's sleeping. You know, know what resources you and use it. Right? We tend to use it last resort or too late, too little, too late. So we need to stay balanced and nourished. And so the, the, mind, the self-awareness that comes from mindfulness is also supporting us to track what, what allows me to stay healthy and balanced and integrated given that life is, you know, not so easy. You know? So, um, you know, I'll take a question then I'm going to move on. Only if it's easy. Okay. And quick. I got one here. Sorry. How would you distinguish between maybe wallowing in, in an emotion versus allowing yourself to feel something that's painful? And yeah. where's that line? The, so the line is watching what the mind is doing with it in that, you know, emotions come up either by themselves, they come up because of what we're thinking, because of the life situation. The indulgence is when we get into those thought loops that keep pushing us back into the feeling. Well, they said that, and, uh, and I'm so pissed off. Yeah, and they did that too. Yeah, and I'm really angry. Yeah, and they said... Th-. Right, so, I mean, there's no hard and fast rule, I don't... But, um, well, from the context of meditation, the way I make the distinction is be present to whatever's here, but if the mind just keeps generating the same emotion over and over and over, then you need to shift the attention from the thought to the feeling. And, and then once you've processed that a little bit, you shift your attention to something else. So you're not feeding that vortex, that loop. Which is not easier said than done. Um, Basically, it's watching the mind keeping pushing us, the, the thoughts keep pushing us back into the stew. Right? So you go through it once or twice, and it's like, okay, yes, I'm pissed off, I'm hurt, I'm sad, I'm angry, and I'm going to do something else. I'm going to shift my attention, I'm going to shift my energy. I'm not saying it's of course it's going to come back, because if some resolve, it's going to come back. But in that moment, you know, one or two loops, it's like, okay, I got it. <laughs> shift our attention. Easier said than done. I'm not saying this is easy. But you're basically watching the mind. If the mind's generating the feeling over and over, it sort of has a hollowness to me. It's not the same as just, you know, a moment of grief arising is, feels very natural and spontaneous versus my mind keep going to the thing that I've lost and it keeps knee-jerking the feeling. Right? That's what we're intercepting a little bit. He's trying to <clears throat> All right, so I just want to round out the day's teaching. So we've 
we've we've looked at uh, the so the first three foundations of mindfulness: mindfulness of body, mindfulness of feeling tone, this affective quality, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral quality of experience. And we've looked at some of the third foundation, which is this <clears throat> presence or absence of. Uh, both both attending to emotions and thoughts, but particularly attending to the reactive quality in our mind and hearts. Right, the grabbing on. You know, in, in Buddhist terminology, it's grasping, aversion, and uh, uh, delusion, <clears throat> and the absence of those qualities. And it's important. Just a, one last thing to say about that. It's important to pay attention to the absence of reactivity. Because just as we have a negativity bias, reactivity grabs our attention much more than non-reactivity. Right? Non-reactivity is kind of subtle. Right? Right? Grasping after somebody, attaching to someone, it's pretty, pretty obvious, pretty gross. Right? Having aversion, resistance, hatred, it's pretty strong, it's pretty tangible. Right? Non-resistance, non-aversion, more subtle. Delusion, confusion, somewhat obvious at times. Non-confusion, very subtle. What does that mean, non-confusion? So, but you want to pay attention as much to the presence of as to the absence of. What does it mean to be free in this moment of being in contention with life? Where you're non-resistant, not wanting, not resisting anything. And we have that experience all the time. We just don't notice it. Maybe when you wake up in the morning, it's a fun place to practice. You wake up in the morning and you're kind of dozy or drowsy and the, the sort of personality hasn't come back yet. And you're just kind of looking around. You're not wanting anything. You're not resisting anything. You're just kind of go. That's a moment of peace. Right? The Buddha talked about Nibbana, freedom, is freedom from grasping, aversion, and delusion. Maybe a little delusion, six in the morning, but fogginess, uh, confusion. But So we have many times in our day where there's an absence of these, this contention, this pull, this fighting with experience, fighting with ourselves, fighting with reality. And we're just, you know, minding our own business. Maybe you Maybe you have a garden at home or a deck and you're just sitting on your deck and you're having a cup of tea or coffee and you're just watching the day go by and you know, not really worried about anything, not wanting anything special to happen. You're just kind of there, kind of minding your own business. Like, oh, this, this is a moment of peace. I'm not stressed. I'm not anxious. I'm not worrying. I'm not thinking I should be doing something. Okay. So... Maybe when you're in nature or when you're, you know, with friends and you're just the sense of ease, well-being. Think about the things that you do that you love to do, right? Whatever it is, you're in gardening, walking, you know. Probably many times during those activities you feel just a sense of well-being and ease, pleasure, Notice those. They're very important moments. It's like, oh, this is my mind when it's free of fighting with experience. Free of contention. 
free of resistance, free of demand, free of confusion. Oh, that's pretty peaceful. What is that? And that's, that kind of feels nice. In fact, that's what I'm working so hard for all these years so I can retire and then I can be at peace. Oh, but I can actually access it right now. Right? There's that story, I forget how it goes, I've heard so many different versions of the story. There's a guy, you know, a wealthy businessman, He's, uh, oh, that's right, he's in, he's, he's, uh, he's, in, he's in Africa somewhere in some beautiful small village and uh, it's a fishing village and, uh, and he's there on holiday at some fancy resort and he's chatting with a local fisherman and the businessman's saying to the fisherman, so, so tell me about your life. Say, oh, you know, I've got a, got a little boat and you know, I go out with my friends and we catch little fish and you know, we mostly just catch enough fish you know, feed our family and friends and you know, trade a little and, you know. And, uh, and, uh, and the businesses, businessman says, well, that's great, but, you know, why didn't you get a second boat? And then you could hire a few people, catch more fish, sell a bit more fish, you know. And then if that's successful, you buy a third boat, you know. Hire a few more fishermen, sell more fish, you know. Start a business, you start exporting, you know, you get a whole fleet of fish, and fleet of uh, boats, and you know, a whole crew, and you know, a team, and you know, a big company, and you know, eventually, you know, it does really well, you know, grow the business, eventually you sell it, and then uh, you make a lot of money. And then the, the fisherman says to so the business guy, says, so, so then what would I do? He says, well, he'd be able to come here and, you know, be on the beach and, you know, fish a little and, you know. (laughs) So, you know, we do a lot of postponement of happiness in various ways. And what these teachings are pointing to is, oh, the peace that we're looking for is actually available here. When we cease to be Fighting with experience. Fighting with ourselves, fighting with each other, fighting with life. And so the fourth foundation, which is a much more, it's a much more complex uh, teaching than the first three, and I'm not really going to go into it because it would take a whole day just to explore it. There's, I forget how many, 27 things in it. Um, <clears throat> basically, it's, you know, the, 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 the flow of the teaching is we're moving from the gross to the subtle. We've been exploring the body, and we're exploring feelings, and we're exploring attitude, relationship, and the mind and the heart. And then the fourth foundation, one way to hold the framework is, is to understand the, the principles or the laws, for other word, principles, that influence and govern the first three foundations, which govern and influence us, govern and influence life. So the first part of that teaching of the, the, the fourth foundation is to understanding of these things, our body, heart, mind, what causes suffering and what causes us to let go and be free of suffering. So, And, and maybe you've explored that a little bit today. 
explored in a very simple way, you know, being present to your body, being present to your physical experience, and noticing in what ways are you uh, creating suffering out of this experience. So we've been here for six hours. I doubt that you've had an unbroken period of peace in these six hours. I'm sure you've had all kinds of moments of stress or dissatisfaction or boredom or restlessness or anxiety or whatever you're normally carrying. It's, you know, it's just, it's going to happen here as much as it's going to happen anywhere else. You have a worry thought about something you forgot to do. You've got a anxiety about something tomorrow that's going to happen or whatever you're, you know, some grief that you're carrying in your life, some loss, whatever. So, in the context of this day, right, suffering is coming and going, depending on our experience and how we're relating to that. Right? How have you contributed to your stress today? How have you contributed to reactivity today? So, I'll give you this reading, which is interesting. This is from the... Uh, 16th century written by an uh, Archbishop Francoise Fenelon who was a philosopher and a um, teacher in the church he said and he's comparing he's talking about light and he's using the light as a metaphor for awareness he's saying as the light increases we see ourselves to be worse than we thought We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings and thoughts. We never would have believed that we had harbored such things and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear like you might in meditation all kinds of thoughts and feelings that you kind of like I hope nobody's listening to this. But we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We are not worse than we were. On the contrary, we are better. While our faults diminish, the light by which we see them becomes brighter. Bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive our malady, our problem, when the cure begins. We only perceive our malady, our suffering, our problem, our distress, when the cure begins. As in, it's the very awareness of that thing that actually allows the eventual resolution. Maybe you show up at your therapist's office one day, after postponing it for 10 years, and your therapist says, so what brings you in today? And you say, I'm deeply unhappy with my life. And the therapist says, well, tell me what's going on. And you say, I don't know. That's why I'm here. I need to figure it out. I don't know what's going on. All I know is I feel really dissatisfied with my life. Even though I have, you know, from an external appearances, a decent life. And so in the course of therapy, you do some work around trying to uncover what's going on. 
we only perceive our malady when the cure begins, right? The very acknowledgement that you're unhappy or dissatisfied is the very beginning of the cure. Up until that time of acknowledgement, you're just unhappy but with no hope of resolution because there's no real clarity about waking up to that truth. So um, in, in today and in the meditation, right, we're looking at ways that we, in a very simple, in a very small way, how we contribute and add to our distress. Right? How many people have judged themselves today? Judged their meditation? Wasn't good enough, wasn't mindful enough, wasn't compassionate enough? Right? That's one simple way you made yourself feel worse. You added to your suffering, right? Unnecessary, unhelpful, but very common, right? How many people compared themselves to others today in a way that you put yourself down? Okay, not so many. Well, now and then. <laughs> right? How many of you thought about stuff that's not happening now that might never happen but caused you a lot of distress in the moment today. Anxiety about the future, right? These are, these are, so this is understanding suffering and the causes of suffering. Oh, when I think about the future and I think about it through this lens of fear and scarcity and lack, it looks frightening and I get anxious and afraid and I feel helpless or something, right? It's just one of innumerable ways we, we can sit in this lovely meditation hall, in a lovely meditation retreat, with lovely people, and feel panic. <laughs> and nothing's happening, <laughs> except your crazy mind doing its thing. Suffering and the causes of suffering. Right? Anxiety, fear, panic, suffering, cause, futurizing, speculating about something that's not, that hasn't happened. So, um, so that's one frame of looking at our experience, right? Looking at the suffering of the body, the heart, of the mind, and seeing what what's really causing the suffering. Like, for example, maybe you've got maybe you're in physical pain. I I have a lot of different. I've had a lot of chronic back pain, and um, you know, comes and goes, spasms and things, this and that, and. Um, um, and there's a difference between pain and suffering. We all have physical pain, it's part of having a body. Whether we suffer around it, whether we feel miserable and depressed about it, is optional to some degree. So I'm calling my dad today. Uh, he's, I said, how are you doing? He says, crap. I said, oh, that's unusual. What's up? He says, uh, I just got diagnosed with arthritis in my knee. I was like, oh, that's unfortunate. That's painful. I said, yeah, it's painful. It's hard to walk. He's very attached to being physical. He's very athletic. And um, I could tell he, there was a lot of additional suffering on top of the diagnosis. You know, there's the physical pain in the knee, which is uncomfortable. But I could tell he's creating this whole story and world of my life's over because I have arthritis in my knee. Right? And he wasn't quite going that much, but you know, that's what we do. Right? So suffering in the causes. 
So, um, so another thing that gets pointed to in the in the in the second in the fourth foundation is um, is this process of causality, this process of conditionality. We tend to think of ourselves, I think, often as passive recipients of experience or victims to experience because we don't understand causality and conditionality. For example, um, you know, uh, um, well, just just like we I just talked about before. Um, you know, we we're sitting here, we're minding our own business, we're enjoying being with the breath, and then suddenly our heart starts racing, and we start feeling panicky and anxious. And uh, peace has completely disappeared. And we're wondering why we just want to leave the meditation day and go have a drink. And it's like, wait a minute, what happened? I was enjoying breathing and then suddenly I want to leave and I want to go to the bar or whatever. What happened? Oh, as I was sitting, I noticed uh, this thought about work and I notice I'm behind on a deadline and I feel overwhelmed and I don't have enough time and I've got my kids graduation coming up and, and, and suddenly I whipped myself into this panic state okay? that's the process of causality right? the panic didn't happen out of nowhere although sometimes it feels like we have a panic attack out of nowhere but actually if we were mindful we would track the causal process the thoughts the anticipation the believing the thoughts, the projecting onto the future. In the same way that we can do that, creating positive states. Understand what brings well-being. One of the questions I'll ask clients a lot is, what brings you joy? And they'll say, oh, this and that and that. And I'll say, well, when do you get to do that? Well, you know, I've, I'm really busy and then I've got my kids and I've got to clean the house. And So when do you do it? Well, you know, on Sunday night, if all the house is done and the emails are sent, then I might go let myself do that. I'm like, I said, well, that sounds miserable. <laughs> um, that's, no wonder you're feeling miserable because you're not giving yourself letting yourself, not supporting yourself, doing the things that bring you joy. I remember writing one of my first book, I was writing a book on nature, except when you write a book, you're stuck in front of a screen, and I was feeling miserable. And a friend said to me, what are you doing for joy? I said, well, I'm working really hard, and I'm writing my book, and I'm not getting out much, and I'm feeling crappy. He says, well, I'll make sure I do something that brings me joy every day. I said, that's a really great principle. So from that day on, I... Uh, make sure I go into nature every day. And that particular winter, it was raining every day, like for months, like the one we just had, except it went and rained for a month, which I loved, because I love the rain, because I'm English. makes me feel at home. And I hiked in Muir Woods every day, flooding, fantastic. And it was great for the riding, made me happy. And it's like, oh, I feel in balance now, right? If I'm in balance, I'm more resourced. I can, then I can handle the workload, because I'm feeling, I'm nourishing myself. So understanding conditionality, doing the things that support your well-being. Mix the ingredients, mix the ingredients to turn your life into joy, right? And some of these things are so ridiculously basic, we don't even think about them, we don't do them. Like getting enough sleep. How many people here are underslept and don't get enough sleep? Probably half the room, I bet, 
It's about a third of the room. Right? Or eating well. Right? Eating things. I went out last night, had some friends in town, went out for dinner, and we, had all, we just had starters for some reason. Most starters are fried. So we just had fried food. It was like this fancy gourmet restaurant, but it was just fried food. And I felt like crap when I got to bed. Like, that wasn't a great choice. It was kind of yummy in the moment. I, like, I love fried food. I'm English. That's what we eat. But it was, you know, it was like, oh, I feel kind of bloated and kind of bleh. That's conditionality, right? It's really simple, you know? And so, like, doing things that bring about our well-being. Taking care of our body. If we don't take care of our body, not a great grounds for feeling good. Resting, sleeping, eating well, hydrating. I mean, really simple stuff. We think, oh, yeah, I'll take care of that. But we don't actually do a great job often. So understanding how suffering arises, understanding causality that supports both well-being or suffering. Another principle of this fourth foundation is is understanding uh, the impermanent nature of things, the changing nature of things. One of the reasons we suffer a lot because we don't really live with in alignment with this reality. We don't we don't really live it in our bones. We know it in our heads. Of course we know everything changes. That's not rocket science. But how often do we get tripped up by not living in alignment with that? Getting surprised when things change. Getting surprised when we look in the mirror and we look older. Getting surprised when when we lose things. Complaining when things change. Wanting our partners not to change. Good luck. Wanting our body not to change. Good luck. Wanting politics to change. Good luck. (laughs) Changing characters, but you know how it is. You know, and, and so one of the one of the causes for this reactivity towards experience and why it causes suffering, for example, we grab onto things that we love and like, and what does that do? It destroys them. And we fight and kick and scream against things we don't like because we don't get that it's going to change. When we know that our that everything in our experience is going to change. It makes it much more tolerable. Physical pain, emotional pain. Think of the worst emotional pain you've ever been in, which might be right now, you know, today. It doesn't last, right? Think of the worst times you've been through. They change. Sometimes they get worse. No, it's the worst. They change. That makes things more, it makes, it, there's more tolerance to be with the difficult when we really get, this is not going to last. In the same way that when we get how beautiful and fantastic an experience is, we know it's not going to last, so we don't get upset when it changes. We might feel sad that it, something beautiful changes, like maybe you've loved this day today. Well, guess what? It's going to end in less than half an hour, and we're going to kick you out. You know, 
Oh, that's kind of sad. I was enjoying it. Yeah, that's sad and that's the way life is. And if you're not attached to it, if you see it's changing itself, okay, of course, yeah, I've got to go home. So, you know, this is a whole deep teaching in itself, like coming into some some deep acceptance, some deep equanimity with oh, this is how things are. They change. And when I when I live in alignment with that, I'm st- I'm not fighting it as much. And I remember teaching this course years years and years ago. I was teaching an MBSR course, mindfulness based stress reduction course. And there was a woman who had chronic pain in her neck. Some spinal injury and um, just very intense. Meds didn't work. Surgery didn't work, which is not uncommon. And she's left with this just chronic pain. Really debilitated her life. And um, she went to this class because it's a last ditch resort. And she's, you know, giving this instruction. Be with your pain. Feel it. Go into it. Explore it. Open to it. Soften around it. Relax into it. Can you be kind with it? All these different instructions that we give. And um, somewhere midway through the, the eight weeks, she came back and she said, I had this really profound experience. That she said she was meditating at home noticing all the tension all the usual hatred she had for the pain and she just something something as often happens in meditation something releases she was able in that moment for a moment to the, the, all, the, all the, the years and years of defensiveness and the hating of it and the resisting it and the fighting it softened a little bit and she was able to just feel like the core um wound as it were, the core sensation stabbing, piercing, throbbing very, very, very difficult thing to be with, very intense but she noticed it was it was impermanent, it was changing it wasn't this monolithic pain that the, where the mind holds it it's this coming and going stabbing right? and even though that wasn't pleasant by any stretch of the imagination she realized it wasn't it wasn't monolithic. It, it did ebb and flow in its intensity. And there was something in that that gave her a little bit of space, a little bit of freedom in relationship to it. didn't make it go away. didn't stop the pain. But it gave her a little bit more resources to deal with it. And so the, the freedom comes, as we've been talking about, in the, in the awareness, in the relationship to the experience. So I just want to close um, the, oh, a couple of things. Well, the, in the, at the end of the text and the end of this teaching, and it's actually peppered throughout the teaching, the Buddha says, um, one establishes mindfulness necessary for bare attention and knowledge. One establishes mindfulness for bare attention, a simple knowing and knowledge or understanding. And the meditator abides independently, not clinging, which means not reacting to anything in the world. The meditator abides independent, freely 
unaffected, not grasping or reacting to anything in the world. That's the freedom that comes from this practice. A non-reactive, non-contentious awareness that we can live in, we can abide in as we move through our life. So that's the point of this teaching. The point is to cultivate awareness that develops understanding, how to engage in a very intimate, moment-to-moment way with experience in ourselves that we can find some space, some ease, some peace, some freedom, some non-reactivity in the middle of experience, not in some rosy little mountain, you know, Shambhala retreat, you know, happy, blissy. No, that's not not about that. It's about right here, right now, like right now, if you don't go to your mind and you don't go to the past and you don't go to the future, right now, is there a problem? Right now, is there anything missing? Right in this moment, not to, the, not to memory, not to the future. Right now, is there any problem? Is there anything missing? Is there anything lacking? Unless you go to your mind in a story, oh yeah, but what about, you know, I'm still waiting for my Tesla. No, no, I'm just kidding. I am, but (laughs) what about, you know, my lonely heart? Like That's going to memory. Like right in this moment, what, if you look to your direct experience, you know, the Buddha gave this beautiful teaching to a young young, uh, seeker who was very desperate to hear the essence of his teaching and and, um, he pestered the Buddha and you don't usually pester the Buddha and eventually the Buddha said, okay, I'll I'll give you the teaching. And he said, um, in the seeing, there's just the seeing. In the hearing, there's just the hearing. In the sensing, there's just the sensing. In the cognized, there's just the cognized thinking. In the seen, just the seen. In the heard, just the heard. In the sensed, just the sensed. In the cognized, just the cognized. When you understand this, you will understand that there's neither here, there, nor in between. That's the end of suffering. That all of that sensory experience, the bad data of our experience, seeing, hearing, sensing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, all the rest, in a way, is extra, is story. And when we can stay present to the simplicity of experience without all of the usual story, drama, reactivity, there's peace right here, just as we've been pointing to. Nothing is missing. Nothing is absent.
So the Buddha says in one poem, he says, Meditate, live purely, do your work with mastery. Like the moon, come out from behind the clouds and shine. This is another way of putting it. This is really an interesting summary of this last foundation. This is from Achan Mun, who was a great teacher, a teacher of Achan Cha, who was a teacher of Jack Cornfield. He says, In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to leave the body. In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to leave the body. Or as my friend says it, never allow the body to leave the mind. Examine its nature. See the elements that comprise it. See its changing, uncertain, and selfless nature of the body while sitting, walking, or standing and lying down. When its true nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world will become clear. And in this way, the purity of the mind can shine forth timeless and delivered. In this way, the purity of the mind-heart can shine forth timeless and delivered. So, so I'm aware that I'm, I'm, I've been giving a lot of teaching today. And um, uh, this is a lot of teaching to digest in one day. Four foundations of mindfulness. Often we'll spend one day just on one of the foundations, mindfulness of body. That would be plenty to work with. Mindfulness of emotion, plenty to work with. Mindfulness of mind, plenty to work with. So we've sort of covered a broad sweep of territory here. And, um, and some practice in between, bringing this to life to some degree. So... Um, as you may or may not know, since many of you are new here, so all these talks are recorded. And um, so you can listen to them uh, online. They come as, one, they come as one, one long recording, do they? Pardon? Yeah. So they come as a recording of the whole day. Um, so some of you might find it interesting to listen to them again. A, I'm aware there's a lot of teaching here. And, um, you know, and, and, and really the point of the teaching is to give you some things to both work with and reflect on and practice with so you go home and in your, in your day, either in your sitting practice or your, your practice in your life, you cultivate some mindfulness of your body. Mindfulness of these, this movement of the feeling tones, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Notice the reactivity of the, or the non-reactive mind. Notice the domain of the, the mind and the heart. And so as we do that, we develop more understanding, more clarity hopefully, more wisdom hopefully, some peace, some space, some freedom. So um, that's all I have for you today, for the most part. So I want to say a couple of things, a couple of announcements. 
and logistics um, before we wrap up. There's quite a few logistics, actually. Um, first of all, we need uh, somebody needs a ride to Oakland. Is anybody here who's going to Oakland who has space in their car? Yes, please. So you are giving the ride. And who needs the ride? This lady over here. You're right next to each other. Perfect. Thank you. Um, uh, I will stay behind if you have questions, but I've been asked specifically that we need to move off the carpet over there. So, or over there, so they can clear up the carpet and the chairs. And, um, and if you have any free time, you want to help the volunteers. You know, this, we need to. They've got a big event happening tomorrow. Um, uh, oh, if you're doing CES, please remember to sign out. We can't give you the CES unless you sign out. Um, I left some uh, stuff about my teachings. I left a flyer. I've got various retreats happening. Um, so Christina mentioned about my nature retreats. Um, they're wonderful. It's like doing this, except more meditation outside in some beautiful place. They're in silence. They're very rich and beautiful. I do them in Mexico and the Sierras and New Mexico and Colorado. Kayaking, hiking, beautiful. Um, they fill up very, very quickly these days. They sell out six months in advance. So if you are interested, then um, just know, know that. Um, I, there's one or two retreats left that have space. This one is a fly. It's happening in New Mexico in September. I think it still has space. I also teach at Esalen. I do nature retreats there. I've got one in August. And um, one up in the, in the Colorado mountains, up in the Rockies. Very beautiful spot in July. And I'm here a lot. I teach Monday nights and other day longs. I also run training, teacher trainings. I run a teacher training in my nature meditation work and a teacher training for mindfulness teachers. You can find all about that on my website, markholman.org, if you're interested. Or just sign up on my email list, which is outside. Um, but other than that, just want to thank you for a very rich day and uh, thank you for your presence and your attention and your practice and your questions and I wish you well and hope to see you again soon. Okay, thank you. And thank you for the two signers, interpreters, who did an amazing job. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.